On March 31, 1949, after two referendums, the people of Newfoundland and Labrador voted in favor, by the smallest of margins, to join Canadian Confederation. And just like that, the people, including our own toddler-aged parents, went from being British subjects to Canadian citizens. On that day, Canada added another time zone and an entire population with a truly unique culture. We have our own dialect of English. We have not one, but three provincial flags. We have unique cuisine that includes dandelion greens, all manner of partridge berry and baked apple desserts, weekly jigs dinner, and of course, the almighty cod. We are so proud of our culture that every student in our province must take Newfoundland and Labrador cultural heritage alongside math, English, and French in order to graduate from high school. That study of culture extends into our post-secondary institution, Memorial University, which is one of only two universities in all of Canada where you can earn a PhD in folklore. Our history is not squeaky clean. There have been dark times, desperate times. But there have also been magnificent times when we've bonded together to make this world a better place, when we've found the light in the dark. All of it, the good and the bad, have shaped our story. I cannot say it any better than the late great Newfoundland artist Ron Hines in his song The St. John's Waltz. We've had our share of history. We've seen nations come and go. We've seen battles rage over land and stage 400 years or more, for glory or for freedom or for country or for king. Don't question or inquire what's been gained and what's been lost. In a world of romance, don't miss out on your chance to be dancing the St. John's Waltz. Join us as we once again go home to share with you some of the stories that you've shared with us in the grand tradition of Newfoundlanders telling stories that are some weird. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Some Weird Podcast. I am your co-host, Barry. And I'm your co-host, Chrissy. Uh, welcome to part one. We're going to break this up into two parts because we have so many stories of our home, Newfoundland and Labrador. But no, we, we received a bunch of stories from listeners from all over the globe. I guess Newfoundlanders displaced and things like that. So we do appreciate it. We're going to go through some of those. But before we do that, uh, let's talk a little bit about Newfoundland. Have you ever been to Newfoundland? I've been there once. Uh, it lasted 24 years. Yeah, it was, it was a long run, yeah. <laughs> uh, the last time I was in Newfoundland was the year before Corona, so 2019. Was it 2019 or 2018? I think it was 2019. 2019, yeah. Um, your car tried to kill me, and my children almost blew off of Signal Hill. Yeah, it was very windy that day, which is not uncommon for here. So even though, like you said, we've t- talked so much about Newfoundland, we do have a couple of interesting facts. One thing you said, three provincial flags. So that would be, I'm going to guess now. Yep. The Pratt Jack, which is the current one. That's called the Pratt Jack? It's, it's a nickname. Oh, Christopher Pratt designed it. He's a famous artist from Newfoundland, and he designed it, and they called it the Pratt Jack. I never heard that term before, so okay. this, I'm already learning stuff. The Union Jack was used up until 1980 as the provincial flag from 1949 to 1980s. I didn't know the Union Jack was our provincial flag until 1980 either. Until the Pratt Jack came aboard, yeah. Oh, okay. You should have studied harder in folklore. Should have. So is the third one you're talking about the white, green, and pink, or the Labrador flag? I didn't number them in first, second, and third, but yeah, those are the three. So you got the Pratt Jack, 
the Republic of Newfoundland, the green, white, and pink, and the Labrador flag, which is white with green, and it has like a like a pine branch, a blasty bow. A blasty bow, yeah. That's right. You get the fire going. What else is interesting about Newfoundland? Uh, uh, September 11th is always a story that's near and dear to our hearts, and mm-hmm. to anybody who doesn't know, I'm sure everybody knows the story, but September 11th, obviously, it was a very tragic day in the world, and it's pretty close to where Chrissy is now, what happened. Planes hit the Twin Towers, and a lot of planes got uh, diverted, and a bunch got diverted to a small town of Gander, Newfoundland, which at one time had the biggest airport in the world, but now it's like, it's not even like a landing strip, not much more than that. Right. But anyway, a bunch of planes got diverted there, and the people of Gander area took in all these passengers and uh, looked after them, and, you know, I, I was a Thousands of people. I don't have the exact numbers on me, but seven or eight thousand people, something like that, basically doubling the population of the town. Yeah. Of course, Gander being a very small town, like basically every town in Newfoundland is a small town, save for St. John's and, and a couple others. Yeah. But um, you know, there's nowhere to stay, and there was no, uh, there was no endpoint to what was going to happen there, right? Who knows so, how long they're going to be there and all that stuff? Yeah. Right. So the people set up the schools they set up their homes they opened like um the shops like um shoppers drug mart walmart stuff like that and they were just like take what you need don't worry about it on the phone company set up all kinds of phone banks there so this is this is before the days where cell phones were as prevalent as they are now that's right and free free call wherever you want to in the world all kinds of crazy stuff that they had and and the people that were here have nothing but great things to say about uh, the hospitality that were shown to them so you know yes I think Newfoundland always pride themselves on being people that are compassionate and helpful and willing to help strangers. Yeah. You say, like, what's interesting about Newfoundland? I mean, the, a better question is what's not interesting about Newfoundland. Yeah, it's, it's got a half-hour time zone. What the hell? It literally has its own dialect. What are you talking about? I don't have an accent. <laughs> Some people call it Newfoundlandese, but yep. the Dictionary of Newfoundland English they started it at Memorial University, the folklore department there, back in the um, 1950s, actually, shortly after Confederation, because many of the people that worked in the folklore department feared that they would lose their language. So they yeah. started the dictionary, and it's been published several times over. Um, the names of the towns are ridiculous. Yeah. Everyone's favorite's Dildo, of course. Dildo is a beautiful little town. <laughs> beautiful little town. Yeah. It's uh, made very famous by Jimmy Kimmel, I think it was. Uh, started talking about it on the news, but it's always been a... I'm sure that town's been the brunt end of many, many jokes because it's called Dildo. Um, I'm not sure what the origin of that. I, I have looked it up before. and has obviously nothing to do with, with what you think of when you hear the word Dildo. It has something to do with whaling. That's all I know. Yeah, okay. There's also uh, like Blow Me Down's name of a town. Black Tickle's another one. Come by chance. There's all kinds of weird uh, little funny names. Yeah. Our town is not that funny, Bay Roberts, but the food is ridiculous. My husband loves it because he only likes to eat the weirdest of weird things. So people like to try to shock him and say, you want to feed a cod tongues, my son? And he'd be like, yes, I do. And they're like, oh, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> I would very much appreciate a feed of cod tongues right now. <laughs> yeah. It's a very interesting food and not, not the healthiest food, I don't think, uh, for no. a diet. A lot of very salty food, but tasty. Some famous people from here. We have Codco, the TV show Codco, which was a, a very popular sketch comedy that aired all across Canada, I do believe, from in late 80s, early 90s. Yes. So you got Tommy Sexton, Greg Malone, uh, Annie Jones, Kathy Jones, Mary Walsh, I believe. Uh, Alan Doyle is a very famous singer from here. Alan Hocko, 
one of our top listeners. <laughs> I think many of the Newfoundlanders who are famous are famous for being Newfoundlanders. Yeah, for sure. But then you have other ones who kind of surprise you, like Gordon Pinsent, who was the voice of Babar. Oh, was he the voice of Babar? Yeah, Elephant, yeah. Sailor White, of course. We can't forget our wrestling roots. Uh, we, we talked about him before and how he ran for parliament, and he's the leader of the extreme Canadian wrestling party. That was a great story. Yeah. Like, even at the very beginning of us doing this podcast, I know we talked about cringing when people mispronounce Newfoundland. I've softened a lot, and I don't care that other people mispronounce Newfoundland because everyone is trying to learn. That's right. I mean, looking at the way it's pronounced and how Greenland, Finland, and all these countries, land is always pronounced Lund in yeah. most geographic pronunciations. So I, I can fully understand why people would get it wrong. So, By the way, I don't know if you saw this or not. Somebody from Finland commented about your pronunciation in our Saskatchewan episode. Oh, really? Um, that your pronunciations were good. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, Finland listener. Yes. Um, they said the pronunciations were, were good, and uh, I don't know if they were being serious <laughs> or yeah. sarcastic, but yeah. thank you, Finnish Either listening. way, thank you for listening, whether <laughs> I did it right or wrong. If, 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 if you say that ironically, I still, I'm still happy. That's right. Like we said in the very first episode, if you want to listen ironically, we don't care. Yeah. Anyway. so if that's, they knew the story. Uh, I don't think they did. No, I think that was a new story for them. Uh, or okay. it seemed to be. And then all the rest of their tweets were written in Finnish, so I had no idea what, <laughs> what, what that was else. Fun of, that was them making fun of us in Finnish. <laughs> yeah, their entire their entire Twitter um, Twitter account is just making fun of the Some Weird Podcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, but anyway, we're all here to learn. So if, yep. if I've ever made fun of you for mispronouncing Newfoundland, I apologize. Yep. Thank you for listening. And we're all here to learn. Yeah, so we can ramble on and on about everything about Newfoundland, and I think we've gone pretty long already. So again, this this episode is going to be a little bit different because we've covered so much content in Newfoundland already. What we decided to do is we had a bunch of listeners write in a bunch of stories that they had. A lot of different fun, cool stuff, and we appreciate everybody for sharing their stories with us, and we're going to share them with our audience. Yep, some wrote in a story, and some of them said, here's something that you should talk about. So for some of those, uh, you know, we went to some other sources to get some more information. Somebody had given us an idea of writing about the death token. So a death token is something that you might see that will either predict your death or show you that somebody has already died before you know it. It's a supernatural okay. thing. And I believe that the term death token is a Newfoundland term, but the phenomenon is probably known throughout many different cultures. So here's a story that I found in an article from Down Home magazine. It was written by Dennis Flynn. Really? I know him. Uh, do you? If it's the Dennis Flynn I'm thinking of, he's a runner. When we run races, his time and my time are always very close. Oh, so he's fast. He, like, he'll be like either just in front of me or just behind me. Uh, so this is set in the Conception Bay North town of Colliers, not too far from Bay Roberts. It was a, a kind of a common thing to say around the town that, and this is a quote directly from his article, what the sea takes away, it always gives back, but not in the way that you expect, which is like ominous as hell. As an island province whose history and culture is inextricably tied to the ocean, this says a lot in a very delightfully dark way. So we dedicated an entire episode of the role of the sea in, in our Newfoundland episode, the C word, which I don't know if many people got my terrible pun on that. But anyway, <laughs> I, I think I think they did. <laughs> I don't think mom did. I think she did. She just won't admit it. Probably so. 
My kids are too pure for that. Well, no, we won't talk about our parole mother, but she does love the podcast, despite our language. <laughs> um, so here's the story. One particularly stormy night about 50 years ago, when the wind was blowing a gale and there was heavy rain and thunder and lightning, which is kind of rare in Newfoundland. Yeah, very uncommon, yeah. Wind, no. Rain, no. Thunder and lightning, yes. You do get it sometimes. In this particular night, there was thunder and lightning. And old Nan, we call it grandmother Nan, uh, heard an annoying banging, which was her metal storm door. Fearing that the wind was going to take it, she made her way up to the front porch to pull it to. When she got there, she stopped dead in her tracks when she saw, clear as day, an image of a little boy, dripping wet with rain, coming up her front steps. He didn't speak a word. He held up his hands and shook his head in the international gesture that says, no. Nan was shocked to see that this was not just a random child wandering around on a stormy night, but it was the apparition of her own seven-year-old nephew who was drowned under a wharf in a nearby town a few years earlier. So did Nan say, come in, boy, you're going to catch your death. Let me get you a tea bun. Come in, me old ducky, before you catches your death. Have a cup of tea and a saucer. <laughs> With a carnation milk. Because I trusted it for years. Anyway, that, that's a Newfoundland reference that our Newfoundland listeners will get. And that's a very typical thing for Nan to say. Any Nan, it doesn't matter which one. So Nan's standing there in disbelief because she's seeing her nephew that was drowned under the wharf, which is the saddest hell yep. story. And all of a sudden, a bolt of lightning strikes her metal door that was banging in the wind. Wow. So had that apparition not showed up and she had put her hand on the door to pull it closed, who knows what would have happened to poor old Nan. Yeah, no cup of tea for her. No homemade bread for the, for the family. I just want to take one moment to think about our Nan's homemade bread. Yeah. <laughs> so good was anyway yeah cool cool story i've never experienced such a thing but stories like this are fairly common throughout the province oh for sure yeah you'll hear about them kind of all over the place and it's usually something to this effect either a ghost will show up to warn you of something like this now again who knows if the story is fully true or not right but yep. it's believable enough. And the folklore of that death token is prevalent enough that a lot of people would relate to it. Yep. Now, I told you before we started recording that I do have a special surprise for you. Yep. So here's part one of your surprise. Okay, here we go. I mentioned in the introduction that Newfoundland has its own dialect. I'm going to give you a quiz based uh -oh. on the stories that I tell. Okay. Okay. Here is... Barry's Newfoundland English quiz. Will you graduate from high school? Number one. Nan probably looked a sight in her house coat and her hair blown wild in the wind. If she had looked like that strolling around on a normal day, they might have called her this. A word to describe someone, usually a female, who goes around like someone no one owns, disheveled and generally unkempt. Hmm. Oh my God, do I got to give you a hint? You might have to. Like a crossword puzzle. All right. Begins with the letter S. Skeet? No, a boy would be a skeet. Yeah. Skunt? No, <laughs> <laughs> no but let's make that a word. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was a word of a friend of mine in Ontario. It was a Trinidadian person he used to use all the time. Um, <laughs> really? Skunt? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to pass. All right. You'll know it when I say it. They would have said that she was going around looking like a streel. 
Astreal. Okay, yes. That's a Newfoundland term? I think so. Okay. All right, so you failed that Zero one. for one. Zero for one. Let's try the next one now. I'm sure that in life, Nan loved her little nephew. She probably called him me old blank. A fish, surprisingly not a cod, and term of endearment bestowed upon someone younger than you. The old trout. That's right. I was going to leave it open because you could have filled in many words here. It could have been yeah. me old trout, me old duck. Me old cock. Anything. But. <laughs> me old titty. Oh, <laughs> me old scunt. <laughs> me old scunt. <laughs> That's the best word I've ever heard in my life. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Number three. This is the final one for this set. Okay. All right. The story of the ghost nephew who saved her life was surely told through the years over a drop of tea and a game of cards. In Newfoundland, the generic oh. word cards always refers to this local favorite. Yeah. And this game has many names. So 120s, growl, auction. It's got one name. 120s. That's right. And it's a twofer, actually. 120s is a game that if you say you're playing a game of cards, that's what it is. It's 120s. All right. If Nan had the five jack and ace of hearts and a decent partner, she might have even bid this, the highest one can make. 30 for 60 or slam? 30 for 60. People say slam too, right? Okay. I thought you were going to say uh, 60 for 120. No, that's, that's not a thing. No, that's bullshit. Some people call it growl too, isn't their name on it? Because people growl when they play in the cards. Oh, yeah. Fantastic game. I highly recommend you learn how to play it. Yeah. I think you could actually get an app for it. Really? Not the same, though. It's not the same no. as all hands are sitting around with beers and smokes. <laughs> the That's cards right. are yeah. yellow from people smoking so much. You got to go in the backs of them. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So much fun. Anyway, that was a nice little stroll down card memory lane. All right. The next story I'm going to tell you is another death token story. And this one came by accident. This was not a listener's suggestion, but I came across it while I was looking up stuff about death tokens. It's one of those stories that I vaguely knew that it was a thing, but I didn't know the details about, which are like my favorite when I start looking into them and I go, that's what that was all about. So here's a death token story about the Newfoundland ceiling disaster of 1914, commonly known as Death on the Ice. This story comes from a couple of different sources. Uh, the first thing was that very same article in the Down Home magazine. Um, another podcast, which I had mentioned before and recommend, called The Futility Closet. And an amazing short mixed media film called 54, which is from the National Film Board of Canada. Anything from the National Film Board of Canada is great. It is. You're not even joking about that. And if you're not subscribed to their YouTube channel, what even are you doing with your life? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a horrible story. It's a, it's a tragic story and a senseless story. But when we were kids, our dad would listen to the radio station called VOWR every weekend. Yep. This was a radio station that played a lot of traditional Irish Newfoundland music. And no matter how I tried to pretend to not like it, there was something very compelling about it all yep. the time. You can either call it comfort and repetition or just a desire to know your roots. I don't know what it was. But it must have had some kind of impact on me because even my firstborn child is named directly from one of the songs that I would hear on VOWR all the time as a kid. So not the song that my kid is named after, but another one comes to mind when I think about VOWR. And that it's a very dark and spooky song called Death on the Ice, which is about the true story of this Newfoundland ceiling disaster of 1914. There's also a really excellent book called Death on the Ice by Cassie Brown uh, about the same thing. Here's kind of the, the story of what happened. 
In March of 1914, a fleet of three vessels left St. John's Harbor to hunt seals on the ice pans of Newfoundland and Labrador, as they've been doing for well over 100 years. One of these was called the SS Newfoundland, captained by Wes Keene, and another was the Stefano, which was captained by his father, Abram Keene. Okay. Princess Gina was the... Uh... <laughs> that was the third one. So the Elder Keene was known as the most successful sealing captain in the history of the Newfoundland seal hunt. And as one person described him, he was just one step below God. Wow. Yeah. That's quite the title. He commanded fear and respect. What he said went. So all the ships successfully made it to the ice pans, but the Newfoundland got stuck in the ice. The Newfoundland was the last of the wooden sealing ships, and it was not equipped with a wireless. The reason why was because the captains or the owners did not think it was worth the expense to have a wireless on all their ships. <laughs> You'll see why yeah. this is a grave mistake later. After about a week of being stuck in the ice, the young captain, Wes Keene, sent 132 men over the side to walk to the Stefano to ask his dad where the seal herd is. To ask him where Marlena was. <laughs> she was in the secret room. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was his best guess of what to do. Like, go ask father where the seals are too. Again, no wireless. So that was it. 132 men climbed over the side of the boat and they walked across all the ice pans a couple of kilometers away. When they set out, it was a mild and sunny day. It was it was March, so, you know, it could be like summer in Newfoundland. Who knows? And they were welcomed aboard. They were given tea and hard bread. Then, to their surprise, they were pointed in the direction of a herd and told to go hunt. Before you go on, I, I don't mean to dwell on this, but uh, hard bread. Would everybody know what that is? I uh, don't know. This happens to me more than you would think. Things yeah. that to me just completely make sense. Sense, yeah. When I think about it, it's like, wait, people probably have no idea what that means. So why don't you explain what hard bread is? So hard bread is this thing that was made by the company Purity. It's like a, a bun, shape of a bun. But instead of being nice and soft and chewy, it is as hard as a rock. Like literally hard as a rock. And it'll break your teeth if you try to eat it. Mainly used for fish and brews. So you're going deeper into things people don't know what it is. Yeah. Basically, you have to soak hard bread in some sort of liquid in order for it to be edible. Yeah. But it lasts forever, and that's why they take it on sealing. Oh, is that the reason? Okay. I yeah. mean, I have eaten it in this hard form before, but it's very difficult. You need like a hammer to break it. Yeah. They get their little snack, and then they're told to go hunt. They had thought that they were going to spend the night on the Stefano get the information that they needed and then go back to their ship, the Newfoundland. But when the elder Keen, like this one step below God guy said, go hunt, there was just no questioning him. They just went. So off they go. And the Newfoundland weather is very unpredictable. Shortly snow was on the way and then it turned into a full raging blizzard. And the weather got so bad that the men decided to disobey the captain, which they would never normally do under like normal circumstances, abandon the hunt that they were told to go on and try to make their way back to the Newfoundland. So this blizzard was on them and then it turned into sleet. The Stefano thought at this point that the men were back on the Newfoundland. The Newfoundland thought that the men were safe on the Stefano spending the night. No one had any way to communicate because the Newfoundland had no wireless because it was too expensive. And in the meantime, all these men were stranded on these ice pans for a total of 54 hours. 
And that's where the title of that uh, National Film Board of Canada short film comes from. In total, 78 of them lost their lives. And it was one of the greatest maritime disasters in Newfoundland history. That's kind of the shortened version of what happened. Yep. But here's the supernatural part. One of the survivors was a man named Thomas Dawson, who was from our very own hometown of Bay Roberts. So it was said that Dawson spent a lot of his time on these ice pans kind of plowing through the snow to beat a path for everyone to get through. I couldn't even imagine what it must have been like to walk across these ice pans on the North Atlantic Ocean in a blizzard and then a sleet storm. But it took quite a toll on him and eventually he needed to lay down and rest, which is a very bad thing to do if you're stuck in the elements in a blizzard, right? The weather got so desperate that they actually started to use some of the bodies to help block the wind. Oh, wow. The sad thing is the men could see the ships. They weren't that far, but they may as well have been a million miles away in the blizzard. It was pretty desperate. Dawson later recalled that in his delirium, he was visited in a dream right there as he lay down on the ice by the vision of the young daughter of his friend, who was the second hand on board the Bellaventure, which was a different sealing ship that wasn't part of this three vessel group that Dawson was part of. So according to Dawson, the dream child said to him, cheer up, Tom, Papa is coming. And the next thing he knew, he was being rescued by the crew of the Bellaventure, just like he was told was going to happen in his dream. Oh, wow. Yeah. So even though the Bellaventure wasn't part of the whole group that they were with, they eventually saw them and his buddy came to save him. I thought you were going to say that he saw a vision of Obi-Wan Kenobi and told him that he has to go to the Dagobah system. <laughs> uh, Dawson had his legs amputated because he, he did get frostbite, but he was probably one of the uh, few survivors from this senseless disaster that may have been visited by his token. Cool. So how many people survived this? So there was 132 in total, 78 died. But I believe 32 of them were like, fuck that, I'm not doing it. And they went back to the Newfoundland. So 100 of them made it across. And then 78 of those 100 died. Basically because they wouldn't pay for a wireless. Yes. What's the value of 78 lives versus a wireless communications? Uh, I'm kind of glad I found this story because it was pretty cool. And now it's time for your quiz. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. If you live on the coast, as almost all Newfoundlanders do, you could be enjoying a sweltering hot 20 degree summer day on your back step. But if the wind changes to blow off the ocean, you may as well get out your winter duds because the temperature can drop drastically. When this happens, we say the wind is what? Changed? Uh, No, when the wind changes, we say the, and it gets cold, the wind is... Uh, I've always just heard it as the wind changes. You'll hear this in your own mom's voice in a second. The wind is in. Oh, the wind is in. Okay, yes, yes. That's right. I should have known that. Number two. Newfoundland is the foggiest province in Canada. Fog is built into some of our idioms. Like if something seems to have been around forever, we say it's old as the first fog. If you hear that the forecast is calling for RDF, Newfoundlanders know to get ready for this kind of weather. Rain drizzle and fog. Yep. You said that as if... What's the question? Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> you would not hear that anywhere else. Oh, really? Okay, that's a couple times a month for sure. You'll get that in the forecast. Final question. 
After the sealers in the great disaster of 1914 endured the blizzard, the rain came upon them and they had to deal with sleet. On land, sleet tends to coat everything in a layer of ice. Newfoundlanders sometimes refer to a sleet storm as this much prettier sounding name. Glitter? Yep, glitter okay. storm. That's a Newfoundland term. Okay, I didn't know that. Even though glitter storms are pretty dangerous because, you know, it's ways down the wires and yep. all that kind of stuff. It does look really pretty. It does, yeah. That's so pretty when the, the power lines come down and execute somebody, but. No, but other than that, though. Other than that, it's beautiful. <laughs> a few snaps at that. I love it. That was the Newfoundland ceiling disaster and your quiz. I have one final death token story. Okay. This is a listener-submitted story, which didn't have a title, so I gave it one, called The Death Token of Perry's Cove. I'm pretty much going to read it exactly as it was written. I just changed a couple words. Okay. My mother told me this one about the death token. She was walking with her friend in Perry's Cove. The style was then to walk arm in arm. So they were strolling along when suddenly her friend increased her speed to almost a run, pulling mom along with her. They covered a fair distance before she finally slowed down. Mom asked her why she had taken off in such a frightened way. She said, I didn't want the woman to link into me. I didn't like her and I was afraid. Mom said that there was no woman, only us. A couple of weeks later, her friend died. Mom believes that she had seen her token. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's creepy. <laughs> it is very creepy. The poor old mom. I guess the mom was like a little girl at the time, right? So she yeah. must have been like, why am I being dragged through the meadows by this crazy person? <laughs> but then the other one, the friend, can you imagine like seeing some creepy old woman trying to link arms with you? Jesus. Good story, though. Yeah. You get a lot of stories like similar themes of that. That's it, bye. I don't have a Newfoundland quiz for the last story, so you're uh, off the hook. Okay. I don't have a quiz for you. Maybe I'll make up a question. All right, then. Okay, those are my death token. Those are my creepy stories. I thought they were creepy to me. Yeah, good stuff. And we appreciate everybody who submitted them to us. Yeah, nobody has names. Nobody wanted to use their names in any of this stuff. So I have a couple of creepy stories here. This first one was sent in to a listener, uh, actually from Newfoundland originally, but now lives in northern Ontario. This person used to live in Kingston. And when they lived in Kingston, they had hens and roosters and lots of other animals. In this, And again, I'm, I'm just going to kind of read this verbatim. Okay. In the spring, the hens would produce abundance of chickens. There was one that was very stubborn and independent hen, and they named it Kaka, which I thought was a very appropriate name for a uh, chicken sure. or a hen. It's also a very famous soccer player named Kaka. Never heard of them. Okay. Anyway. Uh, but every spring, this specific hen would disappear, lay her eggs, and have her baby somewhere that was safe from humans. So the mom and the children would always search diligently for the hen, and were not successful in finding her, but they'd always eventually show up, proud as a peacock, with their babies following her. So one year, Kaka did her usual disappearing act. We'd wander about looking to find her. Uh, one day, the mom decided to search the hen in the cemetery, which was across the road from the house. As she was walking past the church, she heard the most beautiful violin music she's ever heard. A local man had recently died, and he was an amazing fiddler. Uh, she was somewhat unnerved by this, but being practical and no-nonsense person she was, she continued to search for the rebel hen. Eventually, she found it. It was a nest on the fiddler's grave. Jesus. Yeah. It's the most goth hen there is. That's right. No chickens yet, uh, so she went home and waited for the great hatching. Uh, eventually, there were 13 babies. Uh, it was too early to move them, so they checked every day. And every day they went back, there was one fewer chicken. 
They finally brought the home with them into the house, and the decline continued. So one baby chicken disappeared each night. Even when they had him in the porch staying in there, they still lose one by one. Uh, they check each morning, and every morning, one fewer baby chick. The mom said it was a weasel taking them, but uh, they did not believe that, and it was trying to keep me from being scared. So the person said they were about seven when the time this happened, and there's no explanation they were given to it. I'm not sure it was more frightening, the fact that there might be a weasel in the house. Right. Or there's a ghost making off with what would be a lovely Sunday dinner for them. Uh, there's so many things weird about that story. Number one, the chicken would just go, I'm going to have my chicken somewhere and would yeah. just go make a nest, whatever. Hearing the fiddle music is pretty creepy. So fiddle music can be, it's, it's very beautiful, but it also can be very creepy too, right? Like the rant, 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 rant. It's kind of built in for like the devil went down the Georgia style. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or just really like creepy sort of ethereal sounds or whatever. Um if I was searching in a graveyard for my for my feral chicken and I yeah. randomly heard fiddle music, I don't think I'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to keep looking for my chickens. You know what? That ch- He comes back every year. He's going to come back again. That's right. F this. I wonder what happened to the chickens. Are there weasels in Newfoundland? Yes, I think there is. Yeah. Is there? Okay. They're not common, I don't think, but they're doing it at people's houses to steal chickens every now and then. Uh, obviously. That's a pretty creepy story. I wonder what happened to all the chickens. And I guess it only happened that one time. I wonder if the fiddler ghost wanted them. The moral of the story is don't <laughs> have your chickens on graves. <laughs> on fiddler's graves. So, interesting story. Thank you very much, listener, for sending that one in. Uh, another creepy one about a mother saving their daughter from a car accident. Okay. This is one uh, that happened, they think it was in the 1960s. A uh, woman that was involved in a car accident. It was very slippery and visibility was poor. Like we've discussed before, Newfoundland weather can be very unpredictable and storms can kind of come out of nowhere and get very slippery very fast. Mm-hmm. She went to pull off the road and went over a big cliff. Her car was on a big rock and it was just teetering there, just like you see in the, the movies where it'll fall down a little bit and then it'll fall back a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. She managed to get out but started sliding down the cliff and what would be almost certainly to her death based on her height and how much the fall would be. Uh, she said she heard her mother call out and told her to reach out and hold on. So she did this and it stopped her downward plunge and pulled herself back up to the cliff on the road. A short time later, she was rescued and brought home. When she got there, her mother said, thank God you're safe. I dreamed you were falling over a cliff and I reached out and grabbed you. Oh my God. Yeah. So they went back to the scene of the accident and it was just a cliff and there was no branches, no vegetation, no anything of any kind that she could have ever grabbed. So to this day, they can't figure out exactly how she got grabbed and how she got pulled up. Oh, that's a weird story. Great, creepy story. Well, I don't know if creepy is the right word. It'd be creepy if she like grabbed and she looked up and it was like a skull and she's like, bah. <laughs> it was Large Marge from the Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> Large Marge sent me, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty cool though. Especially because not only did the person in the car accident say, you know, my mom told me to reach yeah. out, but the mom said, oh my God, I'm glad you're okay. I dreamt that you were in a, you know, like it's almost like a communal experience. Yeah, which is which is pretty cool, yeah. Another one, like one of our, I think it was our third episode we did the old hag, maybe? Uh, second or third, yeah, I don't remember which one it was. When we did the old hag, someone sent in a story about their experience with the old hag. I always love hearing other people's old hag stories. I was actually talking me to a too. friend of mine. <laughs> is it, I was talking to a friend of mine who told me about his old hag story. It was actually, it was me and him lying on my bed. I forgot about it, but when he told me about it recently, I remember when he actually told me it. He was lying on the bed and I was asleep and he was lying next to me and he was asleep and he was staring at me, but he couldn't move. 
he started freaking out, realized he couldn't move and all that. He was having the old hag. But then he finally realized he was dreaming, and I guess he kind of figured it out for himself, and then just kind of waited until he woke up. And then eventually I woke up, and he kind of looked at me and said, oh, I just had the old hag dream, so. Wait, you were really in the same bed? We really were, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. But uh, this one here is a little bit creepier, this old hag story that was sent in from the listener. Uh, so the most fearful memory of the old hag was when my older daughter was very young. It was very early in the morning. She was sleeping in her crib in her bedroom across the hall from ours. Uh, my husband had to leave to go to work. The old black figure was standing next to me beside the bed. I'm still convinced that I wasn't asleep. But I was totally paralyzed. I was in a panic about my baby, but just could not move. Couldn't see the face of the figure, who seemed to be dressed in a long gown with a hood, rather like the Grim Reaper. Somehow I knew I had to move even though I could do it very little. I think I knew that it was some residual childhood memory. Finally, I did wiggle a pinky finger. The old figure went out of the bedroom at a door, and when I could move, I ran in to check in my baby who was sleeping peacefully. It took me a while to get over my panic state. So you imagine that. You're just sitting there, and the Grim Reaper's looking over you, and you're trying to get to your child. Oh, my God. She was saying, I knew I had to move, so she moved like her pinky finger or whatever. That yeah. was one of the things that we learned about when we were doing the old hag. Like, that was one way to, if you know you're having the hag, to kind how to of, of it, yeah. how to get rid of it. Uh, that being one thing, and it also gave me some Kill Bill sort of vibes. That's right, yeah. <laughs> right, like like punching out of the coffin. And then, of course, the other thing was, as we learned, a lot of times when you get the whole tag is when you're sleep deprived. Yeah. And you're never more sleep deprived in your life than when you're a new parent. Yeah, a new baby, yeah. This listener goes on to say that the local native Ojibwe culture, that pronounce right? I think so. Has a similar uh, malignant uh, figure called the Bear Walker. The Bearwalker spirit is a malignant devil who is summoned out of the wilderness by a witch or evil person. It is an evil shape changer who can appear as an animal, bird, or ball of fire. God damn. Bell Island boom. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> All of one. <laughs> if somebody puts a Bearwalker curse on you, very bad things will happen to you. Very similar to getting hagged. Uh, in 1950, a young man from a nearby reserve killed both his parents because he claimed he had put the Bearwalk curse on him. Whoa! He used it as defense in his trial. I don't know if it ever could be found, but in the McLean's Magazine, August 1st, 1950, had an article about the bear walk beliefs on the island. Again, the old hag was one of my favorite topics that we covered. Oh, yeah. I love the old hag, yeah. Have you had it since? We talked about it. Because I, I was no. very concerned I was going to have it that night. I was too, but no, I have yeah. not. And we recorded that eight months ago. One of the things we talked about in the old hag one was how there's so many different cultures that have... The version of the old hag. Yeah, all different versions. It's, it's a very similar story, but it's it's a little little different. In researching for that episode that we did, I did not know about any Native Canadian type of old hag situations. But uh, wow, the Bear Walker. That's that could be its own episode, and somebody use it as defense in a trial. Yeah, it's almost like a Wendigo. Yeah. It's not about the old hag, too. There's another podcast that kind of deals with folklore, too, that they've actually mentioned us on Twitter. Oh, yes. Fireside Canada, right? Fireside Canada. So, um, like I said, they, they spoke to us, uh, us about the, our fairies episode, and they also sent out a picture, I, I think, uh, for their season two, they're going to be doing a story about the old hag, and they sent out that picture of Buddy sitting on the chest and the missus with her head, <laughs> which we really enjoyed. Yes. Uh, my favorite thing about that picture was your comment to say that the horse was the third weirdest thing. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so basically there's a there's lady sitting there, there's a guy, there's gremlin sitting on her chest and the horse in the background staring at him. So <laughs> awesome picture. 
but yeah, the Fireside uh, Podcast. Check it out. Uh, they do a lot of folklore stuff. Very well done. Very well researched. Very well written. Yes. Uh, I very much enjoy that. It's a different flavor than yeah, ours. Is, yeah. But uh, content-wise, if you if you want to safely listen to the same kinds of stories around your kids uh, that we cover, for sure, Fireside Canada. Yeah, check it out. So I have one more story that I'd like to uh, review it was from listeners. Not really a creepy story. It's more of an interesting story. It's kind of very similar to the, to the remember the one we did there when we did the uh, the boat that, full of rats? Yes. <laughs> that was one of my favorite ones. Yeah. They're all my favorite. They're all like my children. <laughs> as recently as last week, I had somebody tell me how much they enjoyed the rat story. <laughs> Which you found, by the way, so I can't really take credit for it. I just kind of, you should, <laughs> here's a story that you should do. I never would have told it in uh, such an entertaining way as you, though. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so this one's similar to that. So in that it was a boat that was in Newfoundland that floated all the way to Ireland. Uh, it was a houseboat. So there's a guy by the name of Rick Small. He was an inventor from Victoria, B.C. Okay. Not behind Cabernet. Uh, yuck, yuck, <laughs> yuck. Victoria, British Columbia. He wanted to raise awareness about climate change. So his strategy for doing this would be to build a 10-meter houseboat powered by solar panels and sail it from Newfoundland to the Arctic to show that Arctic ice is disappearing. Now, how this is a, a big message about climate change, I'm not really sure. Well, I need to fly a drone over it and just show it or take Google satellite. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do this. But anyway, this was his plan to do it. It sounds like a Rube Goldberg machine of yeah. to demonstrate uh, climate change. Exactly. He he was actually a bit of a inventor and he was fascinated, I guess, with solar power. And he actually mm-hmm. made a solar powered bike that he drove from Victoria to Newfoundland, actually, St. John's over a hundred days. Sure. Bikes are pedal powered or people powered. What are you talking about? Well, like it was a, a mechanized bike or whatever. Oh, like a motorcycle. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of like a little house on wheels. It was like, it was like a bike, but I had like a sleeper in it and it had a place where you can oh. cook and everything else. It was all done through solar powered, right? I'm so stunned. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> That's right. So anyway, he made this successful uh, bike that wasn't powered by his feet. It was powered by solar power and it was electronically powered. I suppose a Petlin from uh, Victoria. Yep. So he wanted to build his boat. So he built his houseboat that he was going to do the same thing. Uh, unfortunately, he could not find a proper motor to power his boat for the journey. Why he couldn't do that, I don't know. He was smart enough to build this other thing. Maybe it was just he couldn't get one powerful enough. So what he decided to do was he was just going to abandon the boat. And say the hell with it. I can't figure out how to do this. So he abandoned it in Portugal Cove, actually. Okay. And he wrote on the inside of it, I, Rick Small, donate this structure to the homeless youth to give them a better life that Newfoundlanders choose not to. No rent, no mortgage, no hydro. Hang on now. Is there a big homeless population in Portugal Cove? There's not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I wouldn't imagine. But if I had seen this boat in the harbor, I would have claimed it for myself. I said, I'm taking this because it looked pretty cool. Hell yeah. You wouldn't have to pay to get on the ferry to go across the tickle. I go to Belle Island every day. I'd start my own Belle Island ferry. My son. So he donated it to the homeless people. And uh, the boat was uh, sitting there for however long it was. Eventually got moved or towed away and it was set adrift. And it made it all its way to Ireland where it sat abandoned in County Mayo, Ireland for a couple of years. People didn't know where it was, where it came from. All they saw was this Rick Small <laughs> message written here. Well, I guess they knew it came from Newfoundland. So yeah, like the rat boat made it all the way to England. It almost got attacked by the, the military or the, the, the Navy. This one made it all the way to Ireland. Okay. What was the point of this person? 
Well, I guess he was an environmental activist and he wanted to prove that the Arctic ice was... But he just created was... junk that floated so, around. Like... <laughs> so in order to do that, I'm going to create this piece of junk that's just going to float around in the water and oh. pollute the land. Adrift in the sea. So does some poor homeless Irish person live in it now, I wonder? I'm not sure what became of it after that. It made its way to Ireland anyway, which I thought was pretty funny. But I guess if you just chuck something in the ocean, it's going to end up in Ireland. I'm sure it has to be the right winds and the right this and that. Once it gets so far out, I guess it'll go from there. But to get that far to begin with, there has to be the right conditions. Well, that's a mental story about somebody who was thought himself to be some sort of mechanical genius, but wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Cool. That was a listener submitted story? It was a listener submitted story, yep. Are you ready for your Newfoundland quiz? Made up right here on the spot? Made up right here on the spot. All right, go ahead. Try to stump me, which you probably will. When somebody is acting irregular or they're being not very pleasant to you and they're causing a disturbance to you in your life, they're said to be a pain in the what? Arse. Oh, that's one. But what else? <laughs> is it a body part? It is a body part, yes. Arse is close. Pain in the hole. A pain in the hole. <laughs> you heard that before? Pain in the yes, hole? Yes, I've heard that before. Yeah, they're all places you don't want to have pains in general. <laughs> Your uh, quiz is much more amusing than mine. Okay, yeah. And, oh, so, okay, so you get your Sunday dinner and you're eating a, a big meal. Yeah. What was the Newfoundland term for that? For a big meal? Oh, your scoff. A scoff, that's right. My son, I got some scoff on to go there today. That's right. Got the pots going, got the, the potatoes, the salt beef. Well, I'll get some potatoes or praties. Praties or, or young ones instead of onions. Well, no. See, dad didn't have a Newfoundland accent. He had his own. Local to our house dialect. Oh, my God. If the water on like Spaniards Bay, say, if that was really not a lot of ripples on it, let's say, what would dad say that was? Some cam. Yep. Water some cam. Or our mom, who's from Carboneer, doesn't pronounce the letter Z or the letter Z. What she say? Ebra. <laughs> no. Huh? She says it like an S. She'd say zebra. Zigzag. Should we continue or what? Yeah, let's continue on. All right. Uh, final story of this episode is also kind of about where people live. I'm going to talk to you about the hidden tunnels of St. John's. This is something I don't know anything about. So this story is inspired by a CBC article by a writer. She's actually a comedian and chef and writer. So she's like a Renaissance woman named Andy Bullman. So St. John's is the capital and the by far most populous city in Newfoundland and Labrador. I think probably almost close to half of all Newfoundlanders live in and around St. John's, including yourself. Yes. It's one of North America's oldest cities. Some people say it's the oldest, but that's contested, so I'm... They claim it's the oldest. Who's contesting it? Chicago? East St. Louis? <laughs> Not for city-wise, but uh, they say like St. Augustine, Florida was settled long before. Okay. Apparently that was settled in the 1500s. Because you always hear that Cupid's in Newfoundland is the... First settlement, yeah. Or the first continuous settlement, uh, English settlement in North America. But then Jamestown, Virginia was actually a couple of years before Cupid's, but it wasn't continuous. And anyway, there's a whole thing. Whatever. Right. It's fucking old for North America. Yeah. Uh, all right. So it's one of North America's oldest cities. It's the site of the world's very first transatlantic wireless transmission from yep. Signal Hill. Marconi played the mamba. Marconi played the mamba? What does that mean? Listening to the radio. 
Don't you remember we built this city? No. Wait, that doesn't say Marconi, does it? Probably not. Maybe it's a misheard <laughs> lyric. Not a thing. That song, by the way, is consistently on the like top 10 worst song. The shittiest song of all time, yeah. I have it on 45. Do you? I do, yeah. You're such a nerd. I bought it at Value Village for 50 cents. <laughs> Are you the only one who shops at Value Village? I feel like every time I talk to you, you're like, I went to Value Village and I bought another meatloaf record. Oh, yeah. Marconi plays the mama. Listen to the radio. Really? Don't you remember? We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. So you're telling me that the shittiest rock and roll song ever written is about St. John's? No, I don't think it has anything to do with St. John's. It sure does. You just Marconi. Well, Marconi, Marconi was on the other side of the transmission, not on St. John's side, right? Who was on St. John's side? Some fucking skeet? Yeah, no, I, I don't know. Some guy. John Cabot, I suppose. I don't know. The corpse of John Cabot was propped up. Yeah. Then <laughs> they heaved him into the ocean when they're done. <laughs> this episode is going so weird. Yeah. Let's bring it back to normalcy. All right. So it's the site of the world's very first wireless transatlantic transmission. Marconi played the Mamba. The home of the oldest continuous annual sporting event in North America. Yep. The regatta. And a place whose label of City of Legends is given in earnest. Okay. So side note about the oldest annual sporting event, because I got to put this in for the townies listening. The Royal St. John's Regatta is the longest continuous annual sporting event in North America. Officially, the first regatta was in 1818. Old is the first fog. It's held every August in Kitty Vitty. And it's unique for a couple of reasons, aside from being the oldest. It's the only civic holiday, uh, I believe in Canada, probably even more than just in Canada, that's dependent on the weather. Yep. It's scheduled to be the first Wednesday in August, but if the committee deems the weather is not good enough, then it's the next fine day. Since I've been back in Newfoundland in 2011, they haven't moved it once. Because there's a thing called regatta roulette, where the night before the regatta, are you going to uh, tempt fate and have a few beers and hopefully that you get the day off the next day? Okay, yeah. So they call it regatta roulette. Yeah. All right. So it's the only civic holiday that's dependent upon the weather, which is apropos for Newfoundland because fucking live and die by the weather, right? And the second thing that makes it unique is instead of the race being kind of in a straight line, the teams actually go down Kitty Vitty Lake, go around a buoy, and then come back. So the finish line is the start line. Yeah. It's not like the normal row races like that where it's just you go straight to the end. Sure anyone can do that. That's right takes a real team to turn around and come back. So if you ever find yourself in St. John's, by the way, do yourself a favor and take the St. John's Haunted Walk. Yes. So good. Excellent. If you even like our podcast even a tiny bit, you're going to love the Haunted Walk. They tell you all about pirates and witches and crime and all that dark kind of stuff. It is so good. But one thing that they don't really talk about is this persistent legend that there's a series of underground tunnels all throughout the city, especially in the downtown area. There's definitely tunnels in St. John's, 100% for sure, because you and I both went to Memorial University, and that university is fully connected by a series of tunnels. Yeah, it's fantastic. Not a rumor. Yeah, if you live in residence, you do not need to go outside for the whole term if you don't want to. I did because I did business, and business wasn't in a tunnel. You can get right to a point where you had to cross the street, but... 99% of it could be indoors. 
Yeah, Memorial University is connected by a bunch of tunnels, unless you did business or engineering or medicine. There's a lot of stories about secret tunnels that were used for nobody knows what, like who the hell knows what, right? Treasure is a big theory that people have. Munitions is another one, like they store stuff for like World War II kind of things. Or another theory about all these tunnels was that it was some kind of easy escape for some people to go from place to place. One very popular story is actually that there's tunnels from the Four Sisters on Temperance Street all up through Signal Hill. So the Four Sisters you talked about in the Ghosts and Haunted Places episode, which was the creepiest episode I think we ever did. Yep. Um, But I think even in that episode, there was some rumor that there was doors in between all those. Between the houses, yeah. So you go from house to house without having to go outside, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of extended into there's also underground tunnels that go all the way up through Signal Hill. Nobody knows why. They're just, there's probably tunnels. Back in 2014, there were crews working at the Colonial Building and the surrounding grounds in St. John's who made a very interesting discovery which was a tunnel that was 37 meters long. And it was about two feet by three feet kind of around, like across and up, right? So pretty fair-sized tunnel. So they're doing the work. They found this weird tunnel and the work was immediately halted. They called in the city and they also called the archaeologists because it could have been of historical significance. That's right, yeah. Especially because of all these rumors that there's all these interconnected tunnels underground in St. John's. So there was a long time rumor that there was a tunnel connecting the colonial building. It used to be the Newfoundland archives, but it was also the site of Newfoundland government up until 1959. But connecting colonial building to the government house, which is the official... Lieutenant governor, yeah. Is it lieutenant governor or lieutenant governor? How do you say that? I always thought it was lieutenant. I hear it both ways, like lieutenant and lieutenant. For all of our non-Canadian listeners... A lieutenant governor is the official representative of the queen in the province. For better or for worse, the head of the Canadian government is the queen of England, and her representative in each province is the lieutenant governor. So they had this long rumor that there was a connection between the old colonial building and the, the official residence of the lieutenant governor. So they thought maybe they discovered this tunnel when they found this um, 37 meter, two by three feet tunnel. Some people argued that The tunnel that they actually found was used for water and sewer. (laughs) Stunk down there. These are found all over St. John's. Like they keep finding these weird tunnels. They're like, oh my God, it's a super weird tunnel. But it's like, no, that's drainage, right? Uh, But in this particular one, it had not just like the rock sort of um, arc uh, to form the tunnel shape. It also had this wooden base. And that suggested that it wouldn't have been used for water and sewer. It would have been for something else like navigation, just like under Disney World, where they have all these tunnels. They have the tunnels to keep everything on the shelves and everything, right? Keep everything on the shelves? That's where like the workers go from site to site. Yes, yes. So this water sewer slash tunnel was like the Disneyland of St. John's, I guess. (laughs) That's right. Um. (laughs) Buzz Lightyear goes to go from the the shit house to the... Yeah, so a lot of people thought they were drains. But, I mean, who's to say they weren't both things? That's right. It could be both, yeah. So what's the theory behind one tunnel to the other? I guess if you had to get somebody from the government house to the sneak somebody out, I guess, or something. Well, there's a lot of tension in all history, but there's a lot of tension in Newfoundland history. Like, just think about the whole thing between Protestants and Catholics. Like, there might have been times where you need to, like, get the lieutenant governor out of colonial building, you know? They didn't really know what it was. It's just a tunnel, whatever. 
They continue with their construction. It filled up with concrete, so there's no flash. Sadly, a lot of the things, even if it is to take your shit away, like they filled it in exactly like you said with concrete. Oh, well, so bad. It is. Like, I mean, you don't need to preserve every single thing, I suppose, but like some things you might want to. Well, I mean, if that actually existed, you could have had it, and that could have been a real tourist attraction, tunnels and go around from place to place. And oh, yeah, right? Walk past the shit. <laughs> don't mind the smell of shit now, boys. Just keep on going. That's well, it. look at, at Paris. They have the whole catacombs with, like, millions of skulls and dead bodies, yeah. and people go down there like, this is a great tourist attraction. That's so, right, yeah. What to say? The shit drains to St. John's couldn't be the same. Aside from, from that kind of stuff, though, there's been people finding stuff in their homes in downtown St. John's for years. So in this CBC article that I read, um, this is a story. Actually, it comes from October of 2020. So right when we were starting this podcast. Downtown resident Andrea uh, Monroe found a secret hidden room in the corner of her basement. Your fantasy. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's my dream come true, right? She thinks it was probably a Cold War bunker. But could you imagine you're in your basement and you're like, what's that over there? And it's, it's like a door and you open it up and it's like, shit, there's an Secret extra room. room. Secret room. Marlene is in there. God knows what, whatever. I think it would be both very, very creepy and also very awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cool and creepy at the same time. Yeah. It's definitely very cool for someone else to find it in their house. It would yeah. be cool and creepy to find it in your own house. Apparently, there's a lot of secret tunnels uh, that they're still discovering and secret rooms and secret things at a lot of the old houses in downtown St. John's. So that's the story of the secret tunnels. I never heard that. That's very interesting. I need to research that. Yeah, I feel I want them to preserve more of the things that they're finding, but... uh, I guess they don't. They're going to do what they want to do. Now it's time for your quiz. Here we go. Newfoundland English quiz number one. The tunnel or drain at the colonial building was pretty small. If one was escaping from government house, one would certainly need to bend down or do this to make it through the squat quarters. Um, I don't know. Do you want a hint or should I just tell you? Uh, give me a hint. All right. Begins with the letter C. Crouch? Cooch? Kind of close. Coopy. Coopy down. Never heard of that in my life. No? No. Oh, okay. If you're hiding from something, you coopy down? Zero for one on this one so far. Let's go to the next one. I'm sure it was already creepy enough for Andrea to find the hidden room in her house. The only thing that would have made it creepier is if it had kids' toys or clothes or a pacifier, a.k.a. this. <laughs> yeah, I do know this one. That would be the dumb tit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that is such a weird and vulgar term. But it is, yeah. Yep, the dumb tit. I remember uh, when I lived in Ontario, friends of mine was like, uh, oh, yeah, we just came from a baby shower and people from Newfoundland and we gave them a pacifier and they called it. And before they said it, I said, dumb tit. And he, he rolled like, how did you know that? <laughs> so. Yeah, it's definitely a Newfoundland term and it's kind of weird. Okay. Huh. It's what it is. I mean, last one. Maybe Andrea figured out she could repurpose the secret room into a wine cellar or a storage space. Sounds like a project she would get around to at an inspecific time in the future known as this. In two sniffs of the duck's arse. <laughs> no. The once. Yes, the once. Gonna get around to it the once. Here's a couple of quick ones for you now. All right, then. If you're grouchy, what's a term you'd use? Some crooked. Crooked. There you go. Um... When you're very annoyed at somebody and you're uh, there's an annoyance, they're getting on what? Getting on me nerves. Oh, me nerves, right? Yep. Nice. 
yeah, real words that actual Newfies use. So that is it. That's our part one for Newfoundland and Labrador, our our home, my home, even though I don't live there. Yeah, no. One thing I do have to say, though, and I, I've been wanting to say this since we're talking about playing 120s, there's <laughs> nothing worse when somebody doesn't play their cards right, when they don't play the right card because they're holding it back to win a trick. Because if you're not bidding, your purpose is to put that person down. So the five points you get for holding your ace of hearts when you didn't run with it, don't do that. Don't be that person. Your job in 120s is not to win, is to get the bidder down. Exactly. If you're not bidding, you got to get the bidder down. So the five points you get for there, that means nothing if the buddy gets their 20 bid. This is making me think of another term here now. What's it called when you hold your cards back? Sandbagging. Sandbagging. Yep. <laughs> but anyway, I, I said to get that in there. No, that's good. That's our episode, uh, or part one of our episode of Newfoundland and Labrador. Obviously, we have hundreds of stories. We did not get to put everybody's story in there. We kind of picked some and fit it into some sort of logical grouping. Format? Yeah, some sort of format. There's a lot of off-the-cuff stuff, like Barry said. But uh, that's it for for this episode. And with that, I do have one more Newfoundland, final Newfoundland English quiz for you. Okay. This is the term for tying up the loose ends, like promoting your social medias at the end of your podcast episode. Cluing up. Yep. (laughs) We're going to clue it up right now. Yeah. So if you enjoyed this episode, you want to drop us a line, you want to tell us a story about Newfoundland or any other province or anything in general, just feel free to send us an email. Our email address is somewhereedpodcast at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at somewhereedpod. And the website is www.somewhereedpodcast.com. Drop us a line. We certainly hope you enjoyed this Newfoundland and Labrador episode as much as I did. I learned words <laughs> like skunt. <laughs> yeah. And there's only one last thing to say. Stories from Newfoundland and Labrador are some weird. By some weird. Is that the boron drum at the end? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm a Newfoundlander born and bred, and I'll be one till I die. I'm proud to be an islander, and here's the reason why. I'm free as the wind. Fade in the Close again. Uh. Is it paint of a taint? Paint <laughs> <laughs> in the shoulder. Welcome to the Some Weird Podcast. I am your co-host, Chrissy. And I am your co-host, Barry. It's part two, Newfoundland and Labrador, our home. Yep. So like I said, we asked for listener stories and we got so many, we had to split it up into two parts. There's one quick thing I want to get even before we get going. I just want a quick thing. On, last episode, we talked about flags. And there's three flags of Newfoundland. I actually looked it up. I was thinking, is it actually called the Jack Pratt or did I make that up? The Pratt Jack. Yeah, the Pratt Jack. So I Googled it and I came across there's actually two other flags of Newfoundland that I didn't know about. Oh, okay. There's one called the Flag of the Federation de Francophones de Terra Nova et du Labrador. So it's basically the, the flag of the French people of Newfoundland. Okay. It predates Confederation. So it's a red, white, and blue flag, uh, but it's not perpendicular it's not vertical stripes. Okay. Yeah. So th- this is what it looks like. And I'm showing my sister a thing. You won't be able to see it on the podcast. But you can Google it. All right. I'll describe it now. If you were taking an art class in elementary school and you are, yeah. had to draw a perception of like a street where it would be wider on the bottom and then yes. it gets narrower, that's what it looks like. The white stripe is the 
road and there's a red on the left, a blue on the right. It looked like there was a yellow crest. Is it, what is it, fleur-de-lis or something? What was it? Oh. One has like the same kind of blasty valve from the flag of Labrador. And the other thing looks like the the logo from the Springfield Isotopes. What? Is Atomic? Yeah, so it kind of looks like, see it there? So that's one flag. All right. Okay, so the other flag is the self-governing Inuit region of Nunesavit. Okay. What's on that? So that has an Anukshuk on it, basically. And this is, uh, you know, the self-governing part of Labrador, Labrador Inuit Association. Anukshuk is vaguely human-esque stack of rocks yep just throughout nature people place them as markers for what am i trying to say like landmarks yeah so like if someone uh, making a path i guess you, if you find the next anukshuk then you know you're going on the right way type thing right yeah it's like um hansel and gretel with the breadcrumbs yes that's not really a good method because they're in a forest throwing breadcrumbs what's not going to eat that right anukshuk makes a lot more sense because it's made out of rocks like everything yeah. in newfoundland <laughs> Now, that's not just Newfoundland, though. Nookshooks are native people all across Canada. So one other thing that we want to go through here, and this actually is hot off the press. So this is actually something that went viral today. I mentioned in the intro, and plus we did a whole episode on UFOs in Newfoundland, and there's been a very recent sighting uh, in Carbonair. I remember in the mid-90s, I went to Carbonair UFO hunting because there was a lot of uh, sightings. I wonder what's on the go in Carbonair that it seems to be like a hotspot of UFOs in Newfoundland. The haven for UFOs in Newfoundland. So but this good. one here, this this video, which I think went viral for different reasons, but the the, the lights in it, it's very uh, very peculiar. Let's take a listen to this. You were showing the same thing up in the states or UFOs. Told you, I seen them last night. You sure they're not Chinese lanterns? No, and they're way too big, boy. I don't know. And you don't show up big like that. You're only little tiny things. We're telling them to put you fell in. Let's see how far close we can go. They're not no Chinese lanterns. One, two, three, four. All right, there's two gone. They're way too big for Chinese lanterns, and you're way up the sky. Chinese lanterns are small. Yeah, so a couple things about this. Number one, do you think this is legit or is this like a, a Kaiko skit? <laughs> it could be a Kaiko skit. Well, the interesting thing about that video is people aren't really interested in like the lights in the sky in the video. The whole comment is listening to these people's accent. Yeah, the Chinese lanterns and all this stuff. That's why it went viral. But those those lights, I mean, that's... They were weird. And it's supposed two of them disappear, but then they pan out and two of them reappear. So I don't know if they disappeared yeah. or reappeared or they just moved off screen. It's like every UFO video. Pull back a little bit. Let us get some perception of what the lights look like as compared to the landscape or, yeah, or whatever. That's right. But, you know, is it a hoax? Is it a Chinese lanterns? <laughs> or... <laughs> Too small to be Chinese lanterns. <laughs> the thing that stood out more than the lights in the sky to me was like, what's the deal with all the sirens in the background? It's like they're in the middle of downtown Detroit or something. Yeah, I think it's the cops uh, must got called out. What's his name uh, from Clarenville? Oh, he came out of retirement from feeding his raccoons to come investigate. Yeah, got an expert in there. Anyway, I thought it was pretty interesting, and uh, it, it was very topical to our uh, podcast, so I figured we'd throw it in there. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think it was? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know what it was. I don't. I, I was probably Dubai's fucking around with drones. Yeah, that's right. Probably. Okay, so... I guess we should just jump in to part two. Let's do it. Again, this is split up in two, two sections. Uh, first, we're going to talk about some legends and heroes of Newfoundland. 
And then in our second section, we've reserved specifically for our mainland part of the province, Labrador. So all of our stories in the second part are just from Labrador. First section, we're going to talk about legends and heroes. So do you want to go into yours? Yeah, sure. All right, let's do it. So I'm going to do a story here. It's about the Newfoundland Rangers. And have you ever heard of Newfoundland Rangers? No. I haven't either. So I thought it was very interesting. So what the Newfoundland Rangers were, uh, is it similar to the Texas Rangers, I guess, type of thing? I guess so. Maybe we have our own Newfoundland version of Chuck Norris. Yes. <laughs> Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah. You have AIDS. <laughs> that was the, yeah, the greatest. Uh... Oh, God. What, what was that from? That was from, yeah, from Walker, Texas Ranger. And it was like, there's this, I can't remember the exact no. thing, but there's this, yes. Oh, is it? I thought it was on Family Guy or something. No, there was this kid and it was like, uh, it, was, it was a very viral <laughs> video. It was on an episode. He was like, uh, oh, how's everything going? Everything's good except for, uh, uh, yeah, Walker told me I had AIDS. <laughs> Why was the Texas Ranger? Oh my God. I, did you, I've never even watched that show before. Uh, I don't recall watching much of it. There's a lot of roundhouse kicks in it. <laughs> I'm sure. But no, I haven't heard about the Newfoundland Rangers. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully they did something better uh, than that. Uh, so Newfoundland Rangers, they were a police force in Newfoundland prior to the Confederation. From 1935 to 49, they served the outports of Newfoundland and it merged with the RCMP after Confederation. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There was a need for a police force outside of St. John's, which always had the constabulary. So this Newfoundland Rangers group was created. So here's recruiting um, methods or what you had to, the requirements to be a Newfoundland Ranger. These uh, requirements would definitely not fly today. You had to be male. So okay. uh, right off the bat, I don't think that would be something that would be accepted. All the cops I personally know are female, all the RCMP. Exactly. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And there's, I'm sure there's a lot of good uh, cops that could have been female. But the Newfoundland Rangers, you had to be male, 19 to 28 years old. Okay. Had to have grade 11, which I guess was high school at, the, at that time, right? Yes. But it was written in the thing as your grade 11. So that reminds me of Ontario Crack Boys or Ricky was getting <laughs> his grade 9 or something. Never got my grade 9. Yep. You had to be at least 5 foot 9. And you had to weigh less than 185 pounds. Okay. So five foot nine doesn't seem that big. No. Especially for Newfoundlanders, I feel like a lot of Newfoundlanders are like average height six feet. If you're a male. Yeah, but less than 185. I mean, that's probably going to take out a lot of a lot of people with their jigs dinner. Oh yeah. Like I'm six two, two hundred now. I wouldn't call myself fit, but that's where I am. Anyway, that that was that. There were the requirements. Uh, it was deemed an essential service, and during the war times, they were unable to enlist in the war because it was deemed an essential service, and they couldn't afford to lose mm. these recruits to the war effort. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So one of the most famous rangers was a man by the name of John Hogan, who I believe was originally from Carbonier. So on May 8th, 1943, uh, John was stationed in Goose Bay, which is up in Labrador. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was about to go on leave. So in order to get home to, I'm assuming, Carbonier, he accepted a Royal Canadian Air Force flight to Gander, which, which we discussed in the past before. And I think in the last episode, Gander, major airport. And during this time, the biggest airport in the world, actually, in the 1940s. Yep. This plane was en route to Gander from uh, Goose Bay, and it started filling up with smoke. So the assumption was the plane was on fire, so everybody jumped out via parachute. John landed in a thick wooded area and only suffered a minor knee injury. So he was lucky. So he spent the night there using his parachute as a shelter, and then he made a plan. He was going to follow the shoreline in the morning and to come across the settlement. So they ended up crashing on just on the northern peninsula, just on the, the island side of Newfoundland. 
Okay. Yeah, they didn't make it very far at all. Not very far at all. So I guess that pretty quick. So that was his plan. Uh, so next morning he got up and was making good progress, but he saw footprints in the snow. And again, we're May 8th and there's snow on the ground, but that's not unusual for Newfoundland, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Uh, especially this area of Newfoundland, which is the northern part. When he saw these footprints, he followed them and he found a passenger named Corporal Butt. So Corporal Butt landed in the water from the parachute and his feet were frozen and he's unable to walk without help. So he went to help him. So on May 16th, they came across an old cabin. It was kind of dilapidated. They stayed there for the night, but the cabin was in such bad shape that it wasn't adequate shelter. Mm-hmm. So they kept on moving. Three days later, on May 19th, they came across another cabin. Butt was now unable to move due to his foot injuries, so he had to remain there. Ponds and rivers were still frozen, but the ice was not safe to, enough for travel. So like I said, there's ponds and everything there, but he couldn't cross them because we're in May and the ice isn't safe enough to thick enough to walk. It's not like the, the ice roads in May, right? So, Right, yeah, yeah. So they were forced to remain there until June 25th. So again, this thing crashed on May 8th, and he, he was here until June 25th. The pond opened up, and by chance, two men were crossing the pond in a boat, and they spotted Hogan. They were both assumed dead after the plane crash, and they were not found during the initial rescue efforts. So this was a 52 days. They were lost in the woods. They managed to survive on rabbits that Hogan caught, berries, and melted snow for water. And he made some tea out of wild herbs. What kind of wild herbs did you make tea out of in northern part of Newfoundland? Dandelion tea? I wouldn't know. I'd be, I'd be poisoned for sure. Anyway, he made tea out of something. Clover tea. <laughs> Lupin tea. Lupins are like weeds in Newfoundland. Oh, they are everywhere. Sometimes they're called graveyard flowers as well. Yep. I remember when they were building the Bay Arena in Bay Roberts, and I would go with a bread knife and cut down a bunch of lupins <laughs> where that, fe- like it used to be a field, yeah. cut down the lupins and bring them home because they're so nice looking, purple and white. <laughs> bread, bread knife. <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to cut lupins. Go ahead Give me the bread with knife. A, with a 12 inch knife. Me about yeah. six years old. See you later. All right. Well, yeah, yeah. have a good day. Where are you going? I'm going to cross this very, very busy highway, <laughs> cut down some lupins with, with my knife. Oh, yes, boy. Yeah, go on, boy. <laughs> Listen. Avada. I think all children in the 80s were independent, but... Oh, yeah, definitely. Newfoundland children in the 80s were just like, you're going outside with me giant bread knife? We'll see you later. Yeah, Newfoundland children around the bay. It's a good place to grow up around the bay. Uh, definitely. So Hogan was awarded the Medal of Gallantry for his efforts, and he would have actually made it to the closest settlement before the spring thaw if it wasn't for caring for Corporal Butt. So he could have left him, but obviously he didn't. Saved the guy's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up working for the Rangers and then the RCMP until he retired in 1969. He, he earned the rank of Staff Sergeant. And there's a trail, a walking trail, called the Hogan Trail. It was created to commemorate this event. It's up in the northern peninsula of Newfoundland. It's a 6.4-kilometer trail, and it's rated easy by all trails, which is the app that can track the trails. I don't think Hogan or Corporal Butt will tell you that it was easy. but No, uh, right? According to the app, it was. So this story is very parallel, and I think the listener that wrote it in when he first heard the story about the uh, the Mad Trapper, that's kind of where he got the idea from this. Yeah, a lot of strange things in this story. First of all, what kind of hardy-ass motherfucker is A, surviving the plane crash, B, yeah. carrying some uh, presumably fairly fit uh, Royal Canadian Air Force frozen foot guy Air out Force. of the woods? Yeah, Royal Canadian Air Force, yeah. Oh, Air Force. See, I, can't... <laughs> I automatically said it. So Royal Canadian Air Force was a TV show that was sketch comedy show. Whatever. Yeah, it was a good political comedy show. Clearly, I know more about that than the Royal Canadian Air Force. Yes. So, yeah. So, he dragged some frozen foot Air Force guy out of the ponds and made his way to some dilapidated cabin, cabin yep. for 
over a month, almost closer yeah. to two months than a month. 52 days, yeah. It's not bad when you got to wait for four days in the summer before the spring thaw. That's right. <laughs> um, that's a pretty wild story. Do you know what ever happened to the Air Force guy? Um, I don't. I'm sure he did. he did all right. He survived. They survived on rabbits. This is when I become a vegetarian, by the way. Yeah. I love meat, but if I had to kill my own meat, I'd be a vegetarian. I definitely would be. I'm, I'm definitely weak and pathetic. When the zombie apocalypse is upon us, I'm probably just going to lay down and die. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So Hogan. Hogan is the hero. He's the hero. Brother, what's she going to do? Oh, Hulk Hogan. I'm like, what are you talking about now? That's a cool story. Yep. Actually, I got another story that's about Newfoundlanders' compassion. It's about the Truxton and Pollocks. These were two American vessels that uh, ran aground off the Buren Peninsula in the 1940s. And the two towns of St. Lawrence and uh, Lon banded together with a huge rescue effort and saved a bunch of people's lives. Okay. So this is how the story goes. Um, on February 18th, 1942, the Truxton and Pollocks were part of a convoy bringing supplies to the American naval base in Argentia. Famously stationed there was the free man, Bill Cosby. Oh, don't even. Yeah, no, I don't, we're not going to go there. But um, he was stationed in Argentia for a point. So anyway, these two vessels were sailing around the Buren Peninsula. So the thought was the Buren Peninsula is right across the road from Argentia, or across the road, <laughs> across the ocean. It's across the bay there. So they're going to sail around the Buren Peninsula to get to Argentia. Buren Peninsula, commonly called the boot, because it looks like... A boot, yeah, like Italy. Without the heel, because we're more practical. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a rubber boot. Yep. So these vessels were sailing around the Buren Peninsula when a blinding snowstorm hit. And like I said, we talked about the weather before. It can change in an instant. And these two vessels went astray from the convoy. So at 5 a.m., these two vessels rammed to the high cliffs of an area called Chambers, Cove, and Lawn Point, and they ran aground. The sailors on the ship actually thought they were torpedoed because, again, this is during the war. And the noise that was hit, they thought they were actually torpedoed. Talk about the Truxton first. Okay. So the Truxton boat, a sailor got ashore, and he ran to a nearby mine in St. Lawrence for help. So there was four miners there. They went with the stranger to go back to the site where it happened. On the way, they ran into a few other sailors. And the sailors said they were thrown into the Atlantic and got on a lifeboat, got to shore. A man who was named, his name was Rennie Slaney. He was in charge of the crew of the miners. And he went with them back to the ship to start making plans for a rescue effort. When the boat went aground, it started leaking a ton of oil due to the damage. And it made the rescue effort very slippery. The trucks and boat actually split apart. And when it did, there was hundreds of sailors holding onto the capsized boat, clinging to life. So the boat split in two. The boat split over. Uh, one part sank. And the other part, everyone was just clinging on it for life. Oh my God. They brought in a dory to try and go out and rescue the men on the boat. At this point, there's 100 kilometer hour winds and there's a snowstorm. At the time when they finally got there and got to the rescue, there's four people left clinging for life. They went out throughout a life rope and two managed to get aboard and one, one of them survived. So of the four, one of them didn't survive. Two of them got to shore and one of them died on the way back. Oh. While the rescue effort was going on with the Truxton, at Lawn Point, which was two miles down the ocean from this site, there was a, another uh, another boat ashore, and people got news of this as well. The so guy by the name of Lionel Saint was on his horse, and he sled. He went to investigate around 5 p.m., and he returned with four sailors and news that the Pollux was ashore two miles away. The boat wasn't far offshore and was parallel to the shoreline. So just after it struck, 50 crew members jumped into the water to try and swim to safety. Only one made it. Holy shit. How desperate are you that you're, you think your best bet is to jump into the freaking North Atlantic Ocean in 100 kilometer winds and snow? That's a blizzard yeah. slash hurricane. Exactly. So it was uh, crazy. Uh, but a bunch of sailors made it to a safety onto a ledge in a nearby gullage. So it was basically a, a big rock in the ocean. Um, however, 
it was very wet. It was covered in crude and oil. And to get to the land, it was like a hundred feet up on this cliff, right? Pretty much perpendicular. Yeah, yeah. It took eight men from Lon with five horses and slides, several hours to make 15-mile trek through the most rugged terrain and weather conditions to make it to Lon Point to try and rescue these people. According to one of the people in the rescue effort, everything was a sheet of glitter, which we learned in the last episode. Glitter is like a freezing rain type thing. Uh, so you had to watch your step. When a party of U.S. naval men from St. Lawrence arrived, reached the Pollocks around 8 p.m., they found that the men from Lon had rigged up some kind of boy to help pull the soldiers up one by one from the perpendicular cliff. So they actually rescued 137 people doing that. Wow. In this disaster, 203 people died, but 182 survived, of which 137 were hauled up from this cliff by the men of Lon and St. Lawrence. Wow. You know what they needed in this situation? Hairy man. Yes, exactly. The hairy man would have gave and saved them. <laughs> uh, there was a hospital made in this area from the U.S., and they actually gave it to the Newfoundland government as a way of saying thanks for, for the rescue efforts. And again, very similar to 9-11 with Gander, like there was places set up for people, clothes mm. was donated and everything like that to keep the people alive. There's a story of one man, he was covered in oil. Everybody's covered in oil when they're out in the water because I guess when the boats ran aground, the they start leaking oil all over the place. Mm. And, you know, as they were being rescued and being tended to by the local town folk, there's a woman that was cleaning one of the men. And she said she couldn't get all the oil off his skin, but she said, I'm going to do it. Just let me keep scrubbing. The gentleman was actually black and oh, said, God. I, I can't, I, you can't do it. That's the color of my skin. And she didn't realize it. I guess she never, I guess, you know, Newfoundland around the bay, there wasn't many, obviously a very low black population in the 1940s. Let's put this again, just for a second, the historical context of what it is. You said it was 1942, Two, I yeah. think. 1942. Yeah. You're in a outpour community in Newfoundland. Guaranteed everyone there is either English or Irish descent <laughs> yeah, and right. have never seen a non-white person in their exactly. life. Uh, not even on television because it's 1942. Here's the, the reality of the times of this story. Okay. So the man couldn't believe that he was being fed using the same china as everybody else in that person's home. And they gave him a bed to sleep in and he, he couldn't believe you sleep in the same room as other people. But the people that were looking after him, they treated this one like he was no different than anybody else, which, you know, obviously you should. History could have learned a lot from these people, to be quite honest with you. He actually came back to the area several times. He moved back to the States, but he did come back to visit. There's now a great hiking trail in the area. I actually did it last year when I was out there. And uh, there's a big monument that tells the story of, of the rescue efforts and what the, yeah. what the people did. And he was there for that. Great story. That's uh, a story of, of, what would you call it? Compassion and heroics. Compassion and heroics. There you go. All right. So my story is also in this realm of uh, legends and heroes. This is a listener suggested. And again, not one person was willing to let us use their names. <laughs> so uh, we respect you. And this is the story about Father Duffy's Well. You know Father Duffy's Well? I've heard of it. Okay. But I don't know the story. I think you can hike to it if I'm not mistaken. It's in a provincial park. Which park? Father Duffy Provincial Park. And you're going on vacation uh, next right. week. This could be something I can do. Let's hear the story and I'll tell you if I'm going or not. Okay. If you grew up on the Avalon, like we did, chances are that you have made a trip to Father Duffy's Well, either on a school trip or a summer day trip or something like that. For me, I believe it was a girl guide trip. My daughter is a girl scout. I was a girl guide, not a girl guy, even though I'm okay with gender fluidity. Absolutely. After I graduated from the Satanic Brownies, I was able to fly up and become a full-fledged girl guide, which is the same as a girl scout in the United States. 
One magical day, we got a letter printed out on one of those mimeograph machines that I was always afraid to smell because I was afraid I would get high. And then that would be a gateway to me becoming a strung out junkie. But anyway, on this mimeographed letter that we got to take home to our parents, it said that we were going on a trip to Holyrood. And I remember one of the younger girls getting very excited because we were going to Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) She had misread the letter. So yeah, I would have liked to go to Hollywood probably when I was 11, but I didn't go there for 13 more years when I moved to Anaheim. So instead of going to Hollywood, busloads of girl guides from all over the Avalon and probably all over the province, I don't quite remember, traveled down the Seminary Line to visit the natural spring on the side of the road called Father Duffy's Well. The thing that I remember most was that it was overwhelming, but not because of this allegedly magical healing waters from this long ago priest, but because in my mind, there were thousands of strangers. (laughs) And somehow a story circulated when I was there among the buses that there was an axe wielding maniac roaming the woods of this provincial park. What? I don't even know. A story went around that there was an axe-wielding maniac roaming the woods, and it was definitely some guy looking for innocent girl guides to decapitate. But in reality, there's probably more like a couple hundred girls and zero maniacs. Hmm. Incidentally, this was also the trip on which I heard the urban legend, which you may or may not know, that if you put your head or your arms out the bus window, it's going to get ripped off by a nearby tree branch. And if that happens, the bus doesn't stop. It just goes. (laughs) It was a morbid trip for me. So I was supposed to be learning about this super awesome priest and natural spring that he found on his journeys. But better late than never. Now I know the story because I did some research on it. Father Duffy was an Irish-born priest who was recruited to Newfoundland by Bishop Michael Fleming back in 1883. Sorry, that's 1833. At first, he spent a year in St. John's, and then he was assigned to be an assistant priest in Fairyland. No word on whether he ever had to counsel any poor young couple on how to heat up a shovel and deal with their fairy changeling baby. (laughs) But as you can imagine, records of this were quite spotty. Very big fairy lore there. Right. And he was the priest and it was prime uh, time in the early mid 1800s. Oh yeah, that's where the fairies roamed. (laughs) It was the heyday of the fairies. And then he was an assistant priest, which kind of speaks to like the way the Catholic Church was back then. It's like... There's too many priests for y'all to get your own parish, so you could be the assistant priest, (laughs) but (laughs) different times. But finally, he was given his very own parish, and that stretched from Fermuse to St. Mary's Bay. Now, here's where his legend kind of starts. It seems that in the tiny fishing village of St. Mary's Bay, there was a problem keeping the Catholic church there standing. In fact, the last two times that the community built a church, it was destroyed, but not by fire and not even by vandalism at the hands of the rival Protestants. The churches were destroyed by my least favorite of weather situations, strong winds. Basically, the churches blew away. (laughs) A huff and a puff. Exactly. Yeah, it can be very windy. Mm -hmm. Assessing the situation, Father Duffy saw the clear solution, which was uh, pretty obvious, right? Build a church in a sheltered place, not up on a hill, right? (laughs) The best place that was most sheltered from the wind that was inevitably going to blow his church away was kind of close to the beach. This did not sit well at all with a local merchant and Protestant named John Martin. From his point of view, the papists were trying to take up valuable real estate. and That was not going to stand. So the merchant thought, don't be building your church on the beach. That's Mm -hmm. where the fish comes from. Father Duffy and the Catholics built their church there despite 
the protest of this merchant named Martin. In retaliation, Martin had a fish flake built on the beach and that blocked access to the church. So before refrigeration, right, fish was salted and that was how you preserved it. And fishermen built these platform structures uh, out of wood right there on the shores. And the cod is split and salted and, and it's laid out to dry. According to Wikipedia, by the way, this is used in Newfoundland and also in Nordic countries. And we know that we have our listeners in Finland and Norway. So That's right. There we go. Our fish flake brethren. That's right. Do you like salt fish? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that I eat a lot. No. And it probably tastes good, all that. As a wise man once said, sewer rats might taste like pumpkin pie, but I'll never know because I won't eat the filthy motherfuckers. <laughs> we should put more Pulp Fiction references in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Martin would not move this big-ass fish flake. Now we all know what a fish flake is. Father Duffy and about 80 of the Catholics decided to go on down to the beach, dismantle the fish flake, and burn that shit up. Nice. <laughs> yeah, they were basically vandals. Good Catholic boys, good churchgoers. I mean, if you look back at the history of the relationship between Protestants and Catholics in, say, Ireland, right, and then by extension in Newfoundland, you'd be like, what is up with these people? Even in our parents' generation, not so much us, but like, I remember one of our uncles telling me, like, I can remember throwing rocks at the Protestants. Yeah. No, it was entrenched. In everybody, that you yeah. gotta hate these people for because their religion is very, ever so slightly different than ours. It's silliness. Let's get back to it. So Duffy and the eighty parishioners, they were arrested for their vandalism and subsequently had to go to court, which was in St. John's. In the eighteen hundreds, this one hundred and fifteen kilometer trek from St. Mary's was a major undertaking, especially because Father Duffy decided that he would make the journey on foot. I didn't find any record of what happened to the other 80 or so Catholics. <laughs> they, they only <laughs> talked about Father Duffy and, and his whole thing. Uh, and nor did I find any mention as to why Father Duffy walked instead of like going by horse or like, you know, someone took him in a carriage. But my assumption here is that he was a ultimate guilt generating Catholic. And he was like, no, nah, I'll be fine. I'll just walk. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> Something like that. Whatever the reason, the Irish-born priest walked to town along what's now Salmonair Line. This was a very tiring business, but fortunately, he happened to come across this pretty little natural spring where he'd take a drink, probably wash the dust off the road, and, you know, here in this clearing, he'd take a little rest and commune with nature, recharge his batteries, whatever. He was able to regather his strength and his spiritual fortitude to fight for his right for the non-fish flake obstructed Catholic church on the beach. And for some reason, I I don't really know why, but Father Duffy had to go back and forth to St. John's multiple times. And every single time he'd stop at this spot, this particular spring, and eventually it became known as Father Duffy's Well. So Father Duffy's okay. Well is not a well at all. It's It's just a spring. Over the years, Father Duffy's Well took upon a sort of legendary status. Not only was it some fresh water where the Catholic leader and arsonist would have a drink, (laughs) but stories started to circulate about the magical restorative power of the spring. So suddenly you'd hear stuff like your aunt by marriage had a second cousin who was once removed, whose skin condition was cured after he dipped his toes in Father Duffy's Well. Those kind of stories. Yeah. But surprisingly, I couldn't find one story about a specific person who was cured. Just a lot of comments about how the water has curative properties. 
So that's the tame version of how this unassuming spring became Father Duffy's well. But at the Mun Folklore and Language Archives, they have a much more metal version of what happened at Father Duffy's well. Uh, so in this one, Father Duffy is like 50 kilometers or so into his walk to St. John's, you know, bring it on to guilt. I'll just walk by. So don't worry yeah. about the horses. He's on his way at about 50 kilometers in or so. He has to defend himself against a literal demon. Oh, Yes. So in what I can only imagine as a fight club type of brawl, the priest defeats the evil incarnate by dashing its head upon the rocky Newfoundland ground. And there at that very spot, a magical spring bursts through the rocks. So whether it's a place where a tired traveler stopped for a rest or a site of an epic battle between good and evil, the spring is now a tourist attraction and a provincial park. The Knights of Columbus built a concrete shrine about the spring and affixed a metal pipe for the water to come through in 1935. You can visit Father Duffy's well today. Can you drink water? Or do you need like a special filtration system? People had said they put this pipe in there for like the spring water to come out, and that messed up the taste of the water. Just leave it as it was. Why'd you have to go building weird shit all around it? But Fuck you, Knights of Columbus. What is the Knights of Columbus anyway? Is that like the Knights Templar? Like is this a secret society of Catholics or what? Like what is it? It's not very secret because everybody knows about it. I don't really know what they are, what they do. <laughs> they have to get together and drink beer, I think. I, uh, is it like the Lions Club, but Catholics? Is it like the, the Ladies Auxiliary? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what any of these fucking things are, what they do. They, they raise money and they drink and there's bars and they got facilities where you can drink and play the slots. I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's like any of those fraternity groups. Yeah. You know, whatever. But anyway, the Knights of Columbus decided that they should build a shrine around this. You know, well. and they put springs in in wells. They do that kind of that kind of work, <laughs> missionary work. Missionary work. Anyway, the Knights of Columbus did this for reasons I, I'm not sure why. So whether anyone was actually cured of anything after drinking from the spring or washing in its waters is is debatable. Like I said, I I didn't find any specific stories. Just comments like, "Oh, you go to Father yeah. Duffy's well." But people say that when you're there, you do get a feeling of, like, peace and, and well-being. So I'm, I'm definitely going here, just so you know. I'm going here next week. And I actually have the, uh, right here, which no one's going to be able to see, but this is, this is the thing to actually filter spring water. Holy shit, you've got to be drinking something out of, out of Father Duffy's well, then. Yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing. So next time you hear me on the podcast, I'm going to be cured from fuckery. Because I'm not really, I'm not really sick. I'll dip my head in the water. <laughs> baptism i get I'll get my wife to baptize me in the water <laughs> the power of christ compels you that's right all right um okay so what happened to father duffy all the charges were eventually dropped catholic judge i guess i probably i mean who knows but shortly after this whole incident father duffy moved to nova scotia and then shortly thereafter he moved to prince edward island and that's where he lived out his priestly days he passed away in, I think it was 1860, and he's buried at Kelly's Cross Cemetery in Prince Edward Island, which I hope is the very same cemetery where the Kelly Ferry from the PEI episode is buried. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's the story of, of Father Duffy. I mean, he's a bit of a renegade, and I think a lot of it is exaggeration. Like, there's definitely Father Duffy's well. You can go there. In fact, you will go there, and you should take a picture of yourself drinking from I it will. and put it on the Twitters. But I think there's a lot of legend kind of built up around him. Uh, something for, like, Catholics to get behind. Like, he walked all the way to defend the right for the church and, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Now, I have for you the Newfoundland English quiz. Oh, here we go. 
Again, Barry's Newfoundland English quiz has got three questions based on the last story that I told. Father Duffy's Well is now a lovely little rest spot in a provincial park, which you will be visiting on your vacation. Here in New Jersey, when we prepare meals outside, it's called a cookout or a barbecue. When Newfoundlanders cook food outside, we tend to break out the Coleman stove and have ourselves a nice little what? That would be a boiler. Okay, I don't even need to give you the hint. Yes, a boiler. Number two, at a boiler, you can have any kind of food. In Newfoundland, this might include a hunk of bologna from a maple leaf big stick, otherwise known as the Newfie what? Uh, first of all, the, the big stick bologna man is the, the key figure in the St. John's Santa Claus Parade. Uh, is it? Anyway, uh, steak is the answer. Yeah, and bologna is a, is a Newfie steak. This is a twofer. You might wash this down with tea or a soda or soft drink. In Newfoundland, this is known as a... Can of drink. Yeah, a soda or soft drink in Newfoundland is known as a, a can. I, I said tin of drink, but yeah, can of drink, tin of drink, same thing. What's the most popular tin of drink in, in uh, Newfoundland? Oh, pe- Pepsi. Yeah. By far. Quebec and Newfoundland are the two places... Uh, where Pepsi greatly outseeds the selling of, of uh, Coke. All right, number three, last one in this set. Many Newfoundlanders put milk in their tea, especially when around the training age of about six or seven, they drink tea from a saucer. Around the bay, we usually put in tin milk, a.k.a. carnation milk, but you can also put in this kind of milk if you're right grand. A different kind of milk does right grand. I always got a stomper there for you. I don't know. You could have in your tea either tin milk or fresh milk. Oh, fresh milk. I was thinking that some Newfoundland term. It is a Newfoundland term. When I moved to California, I was on a plane from Chicago to L.A. And like a good Newfoundlander, I had a cup of tea. So you do. Like an old lady having a cup of tea on a plane. So uh, the flight attendant, you know, she's, you know, I asked her for a tea and I said, can I have it with fresh milk? And she was so fucking offended. I thought she was going to stab me in the asshole. In the asshole? Yes, specifically. It's interesting choice of uh, <laughs> stabbing location. She was so offended that I said fresh milk. And, and like she gave me such a darting look and I didn't know what I'd done or what I'd said. I, you know, I just, I was asking for fresh milk in my tea and she brought me the tea and she said, well, I wouldn't give you sour milk. Yeah. I was like, what is she talking about? It took me a while. I was like that meme of the lady yeah. who's like working out all the math. But yeah, so fresh milk is a Newfoundland term. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't that I wouldn't know it. It, just, it didn't occur to me that that was even a thing. Yeah, it is. Don't offend your flight attendant by asking for it. All right, uh, so that was our Legends and Heroes. Our next section, we're going to talk about stories specific to Labrador. Yep. So I'm going to discuss a cryptid that is famous in Labrador and also famous to our good friends in Greenland. It's about the uh, cryptid by the name of the Ninorlok. And that loosely translates into the evil polar bear. Have you ever seen a polar bear in real life in the wild? Uh, I haven't. I do know that they're all left-handed, though. Do you know that? Yeah, they're all left-handed, and uh, their offspring are twins. Always twins, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the earliest mention of the Norlock is in author David Krantz's History of Greenland. So it ties in uh, nicely with our, our friends of Greenland, all those listeners that we have. I have to read this book. Is it yeah. a book or article? It's mentioned by him uh, in his History of Greenland. I, I'm, I'm assuming the History of Greenland would not be an article. It's a pamphlet. It's a, pamphlet. <laughs> it's a one-pager. <laughs> it's the Coles Notes. Uh, 
Uh, he says that the creature uh, hunted down and devoured seals. Well, that's what polar bears do, don't they? That's, yeah. Devour is an interesting term, though. Okay. His ears were long enough for the covering of a tent, and he was not against eating human flesh when it came on slower. So he, he likes seals, but he also liked the good taste of a good human. <laughs> the long pork? Okay. Yeah. So, so far, it sounds like a normal polar bear. Yeah, it's a normal polar bear, but uh, we'll get into uh, why it's a little bit different now in a second. Okay. The Inuit first reported seeing it in 1786 when they were doubted when they got upset. So the original report was that a beast rose from the mouth of the bay, showed its white color, and then plunged down, leaving a whirlpool of foam. So people just kind of dismissed that. Oh, that's just an iceberg that collapsed, which kind of sounds what it would be. Yeah. But then a missionary by the name of Carl Codfried was inane in 1840, and he writes that the monster was as white as a polar bear, but resembles a small island in the water, but it quickly sinks below, and when it does, it makes a thunderous noise. He says, uh, when he saw it, he said seals took off instantly, didn't want to get devoured to become in their next meal, so they kind of ran away from this. Inuit actually believe it doesn't swim, but it actually walks in the bottom of the ocean. So oh, it's geez. so big, it can reach the bottom of the ocean. The ocean's pretty deep, folks. That's fine. It was said to turn over rocks when it walked, was spotted again in the spring of 1847 and it had antenna-like sails or tents protruding from it out of the water at a, at a distance of 100 paces. A pace would be what? 10 feet maybe? I mean, it's just a step, right? Like two or three feet? Two or three feet, a meter. Three feet's a meter, so 300 feet-ish. People who saw this would be scared if they're out in the, out in the water, they come right to shore right away. Uh-huh. And it had a voice or a noise that it made. It resembled a low thunder, which is unpleasant to hear. And it was said it could swallow humans whole. One gulper. No specific stories in regards to, you know, encounters of it and all that, but it was seen by both people from Greenland and people from Labrador. If its main food source is seals and it can swallow a human whole, you'd probably have to eat like an ass load of seals. An ass load is how many seals, do you think? That's probably like five or six seals at a time. Yeah. Like <laughs> seals, yeah. Seal, two or three seals is the size of a human, I would think. Yeah, so if you can swallow one human whole, that means you could swallow three, three or four seals. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's uh, the Norlock. It's one of the cryptids. It's your standard cryptid story. No different than Cressy or Loch Ness Monster or all these things that were seen back in the 1800s. And you, you'll get a picture of it from 5,000 kilometers away to have a little leaf coming out of the water. Yeah, but I mean, still, who knows what's out there? The dumbest argument to me is like against things like, for example, Bigfoot, right? Uh, is, well, you never see like a Bigfoot bones or Bigfoot body or whatever. It's like, I also don't see the body of a bear or a rabbit or a deer. or mm. You know what I mean? I don't see like corpses yes. in the woods every Walk time around the woods and see nonstop corpses. <laughs> right? All right. That's cool. I mean, it's the, your stories of cryptids are informed by your environment and uh, polar bears are things that you would see in northern Labrador and icebergs are things and yeah it's easy to manifest two of them into some kind of super creature for sure yeah for sure cool um all right so the final story of the night is also from labrador and this was suggested again by a listener this is the story of the nalyuk of northern labrador in communities such as nain and hopedale which are way up north labrador the christmas season starts four weeks before christmas day and ends on january 6th which is old christmas day for us on the island portion of the province old christmas day is the last day of the christmas season it's the last day from mummering traditionally and it's also the day that you chucked out your hopefully not too dry christmas tree 
Or if you lived in our house, it's the day you packed up your fake tree and put it in the basement for next year. Remember why we always had a fake tree? I do. Do you? Because dad thought it was going to spont- a real tree would spontaneously combust and burn the house down? Yes. He was terrified that the tree was going to kill us in our sleep. Like, what was it? Like, it was like a beast in the tree that was going to ignite? It's a problem. Like dried out Christmas trees is a problem. If you don't properly water your real Christmas tree, it can dry out really quickly. I mean, I guess nowadays the lights you put on there are not hot. Like Yeah, okay. I guess, yeah. But yeah, they would heat up and... I mean, do you just put candles on trees? Like, what the fuck is wrong yeah, with you? I suppose, yeah. Do you have a real tree or a fake tree? Fake tree. Me too. We've had real trees. I'm not concerned about it burning down in my sleep. I just, it's a, they're messy. Yeah. But in Labrador, Old Christmas Day has significance completely all to its own. Here, Old Christmas Day is also known as the Night of the Nalyuk. The Nalyuk will come from an unspecified place somewhere in the east and comes off the sea ice and invades your community. Mm. You could think of a Nalyuk as a kind of a boogeyman slash mummer slash Santa Claus hybrid. On the eve of January 5th, younger children will rehang their Christmas stockings in anticipation for the Nalyuk's visit. Unlike Santa Claus, who comes to your house in the dead of night, <laughs> breaks in and leaves presents under your tree, but only if you're good. The Nayuk will go house to house and visit and call each children to come forth and get their candy and their gift. It sounds like a nice little tradition, kind of sweet. But remember I said there's like a boogeyman kind of side to it. The Nayuk are usually played by a couple of young men in the community, but they don't just go around giving treats out willy nilly like, here you go, little children, have some candy. They actually dress up in these really creepy masks. And they wear oversized traditional winter clothes, and it's meant to disguise their true self. And this is where they're sort of similar to a Newfoundland mummer. Yeah. They also carry with them very large sticks or chains to beat you with if you haven't been good all year. (laughs) Nice. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. In another article, or in one of the articles that I read for this, the Nayuk also carry a sack in which they put bad children to be carried off into the woods and abandoned. So it's a little bit more than just giving out candy. Mm. Also, when they go to the younger children's house and they call the children to come up by name, they do it in like a muffled and distorted, scary way. So they'd be like, Mary, come get your candy. (laughs) (laughs) Like that. There's a lot of the uncanny valley qualities associated with the Nayuk, you know, the mask and the distortion of the face and everything, and just the general creepiness of it all. I always find the distorted voice very creepy. Like, you ever seen you get those interviews and they undisguise the person's voice so you don't know who they are? Yeah. I mean, like, I just find that very creepy. <laughs> yes. Because it's almost a real voice, but not quite a, it's just, yeah. it's the uncanny valley of voice, really. When the Nayuk enter the house and they call the children to come up by name in the creepy, distorted voice, they usually require a couple of things. First, they require assurance that the child was indeed a good boy or a good girl throughout the year. They get that ticked off their list. And then number two, the child usually has to sing a secular song or a hymn, preferably in the Anutatut language, but any language will do. So if you wanted to sing it in English, you could do that as well. So if these two criteria are met, the child's stocking, the one that they've rehung, they get filled up with candy and and maybe they get a little toy as well. That's kind of like the little kid part of the Nayuk tradition. 
So the Nyok-child relationship serves the same purpose of a lot of other folkloric stories, like the fairies of Newfoundland, where it enforces those societal rules and encourages good behavior. Yep. Be good this year, I get whipped with the chains. The Nyok will come off the sea ice and beat your ass with a chain. Anyway, yeah. or if you're good, you can get some candy. Yeah. Or he'll say, come get your candy. <laughs> you sound like the bug from Men in Black. <laughs> A, that's a child Nayuk tradition, but there's also part two of the Nayuk, uh, or the Night of the Nayuk. So after the little kids, they have, they've been visited and, and they get their candy and all that kind of stuff. They do the little songs. The Nayuk uh, take to the streets in search of older kids and young adults, probably some older adults too, I would imagine. Basically, it turns into like an adult reverse Halloween on skidoos. Okay. <laughs> All right. So again, the Nayuk are disguised in these creepy masks and these large mismatched clothes. They usually wear sealskin boots, which are very important in the costume because part of the Nayuk story is that they're very, very fast, like a World War Z zombie. And the sealskin boots are light and helps them run even faster. So they're running through the streets carrying these big old beaten sticks. And unlike for the little kids, where the stick is like an intimidation, like you better be good and the Nayak's going to get you. The older ones, they're meant for hitting you. Jeez. So on Nayuk night, the streets of northern Labrador communities are filled with guys dressed as creepy beings from places unknown, chasing people through the streets and looking for people who have been naughty. Occasionally, they'll swipe at you with their stick or their chain. And sometimes, you know, you'll be contacted. You'll be hit by one of these things. But overall, it's all in good fun. Okay. So it sounds like fun, actually. No one's getting beaten to death by the Nayuk. Yeah. If you're approached by a Nayuk, you can't escape your fate of getting whacked by this beaten stick. In the same way that the kids are. You can sing a song. That's that's part of their tradition. Or you can just step to the side. You can just run away, get on your skidoo and get the fuck out of there. Um, so you can sing a song. And usually at this point, the Nayuk will shake your hand and give you some candy, even if you're a grown up. And this is where it's like reverse Halloween. <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of the people who are listening to this, and I know, Barry, you are drawing a lot of similarities between the Nayuk and Krampus. Yes. Do you know what Krampus is? Krampus is like the evil Santa Claus. Isn't oh, it? you do? <laughs> I don't know much about it. I do know it's evil Santa Claus. I don't know the, the, the lore of it. but Krampus is a horned, long-tongued, judgy Santa Claus sidekick. Part of the German tradition. Like you said, Barry, in one of our early episodes, the folklore of the varying cultures, they're not identical, but they do rhyme. Yes. Yep. So this is a good example of that. In the case of the Nayuk, the indigenous peoples of Labrador use it as a story to make their kids behave, obviously, and surely the communities are fairly isolated, but they don't live in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Moravian missionaries from the early 1800s and onward had a really big impact on the people of Labrador, and this might have played a role in Nayuk night being on old Christmas Day. And it even might have also contributed to some of those Krampus-like imagery because Moravian religion started in Germany. Equally, Newfoundland sealers and fishermen were coming to the Labrador coast year after year after year. Yep. And that might have helped inform the story of strangers from the sea. But their tradition wasn't taken from other cultures. Like other stories and all folklore, the tradition of the Nayuk, as it is today, was shaped by the experience and the history of the people that celebrated. And that included being visited by Newfoundland fishermen, being converted to Christianity by the Moravians, 
what they saw in their own community and culture, their need to enforce behavior of children, and just having a good laugh on their skidoos. <laughs> That's right. Out for a rip. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yep. I watched a ton of videos on it because mostly I wanted to figure out how you pronounce Nayuk, and I don't know if I did or not, but I tried my best. And just to get a feel, you know, of what it was all about. It looks like a lot of fun. It does for sure. Yeah. That's the story of the Nayuk. Cool. Kind of crazy. Ready for your quiz? I am. I got a quiz for you when we're done, but uh, I'll let you go first. Oh, okay. Uh, here's your Newfoundland uh, Labrador quiz inspired by the story of the Nayuk. So like I said, I watch a lot of videos just so I can figure out kind of what the hell's going on with this <laughs> this night of the Nayuk. Of course, it's January 6th. So that's the day that it all happens. And it looked very, very cold. <laughs> there was like snow everywhere. And it made me start to think about the weather in general in Newfoundland. So these questions are related to the weather. Okay. Number one, it always seems to be very windy in Newfoundland. If it's particularly windy, you might describe it as being windy enough to blow the horns off a what? A goat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's windy enough to blow the horns off a goat. Yep, I knew that one. All right, cool. One for one. Number two, if it's a nice sunshiny day with a good breeze, but not a gale, Newfoundlanders might say it's a fine day on this. Not blowing a gale, but it's a little bit windy. It's a fine day on. I guarantee you, if you go on Newfoundland and Labrador Tourism website, you will see a picture of this. It's a fine day on the rock. I I, I don't know. You might know it when I say it. It's a fine day on clothes. Can't see if I've ever heard that. Okay. Every tourism picture of Newfoundland, you're going to get pictures of colorful houses and clothes on the line. Yeah. All right. Last one. It's rarely hot in Newfoundland. Most homes don't even have air conditioning because there's just no practical reason for it. In New Jersey, I would die without AC because here it gets as hot as balls. In Newfoundland, <laughs> or at least in our house, when the temperature rises above 25 Celsius, we say she's hot. Hot like the... Vampire! <laughs> yep. Hot like the vampire. That's local to about 10 people in all the province of Newfoundland. It's local to our house and anyone who yeah. knows us personally. Yeah. I gave this quiz to my middle kid and she knew that one right away. Yeah. No, I, don't, <laughs> I don't doubt it. I've actually referenced that in trivia. We've referenced it on the podcast in the past, but it's always a good laugh. All right. So I, I scroll down a few questions here. All right. Uh, two questions and we'll have a little discussion on Newfoundland cuisine. The first one is if you're very busy... First of all, Newfoundland is separated by two people. There's townies and baymen. The townies are people from the St. John's area, and baymen's pretty much everybody else. Yeah. So for somebody who is very busy, they're said to be as busy as a baymen with two of these, which could be a source of heat. Um, I, I don't know. Busy as a baymen with two wood stoves. With the thought <laughs> being that I was baymen cutting wood and uh, getting two stoves going. <laughs> It's funny, though. I yeah. like that. No, I've not. I can't say I've ever heard that before. you got a wood stove. I do. I have two wood stoves, actually. Do you have two wood stoves? I'm a bayman. <laughs> yep. Okay. So if you're at the, the town hall for a dance, whether it be the, you know, the Christmas dance or, or a wedding, and you get Nan up for a dance or you get someone up for a dance and they take off their shoes, yeah. what kind of dance are they doing? What's it called? That's a scuff. That's a scuff. Yeah. yeah that's right. Going for a scuff. Sometimes you'll have a scoff, then a scoff. You throw on the, uh, the John Cougar melon cap and scoff ensues. 
All right, so a little talk about Newfoundland cuisine. So tell me which ones these you like, dislike, or whatever. So the first one, Vienna sausages. Dislike. Dislike it? And they're not really a Newfoundland thing, but they're very popular here. It's like Spam in Hawaii. It's not invented there, but... And there's a particular way that Newfoundlanders open the Vienna sausage. Yeah, so first of all, you open it up and you put out the disgusting juice that's in it. There's a can and there's wieners all around the can. And there's one in the middle. So what you got to do is you got to hold the can and you whack your arm. And the wiener in the middle pops up first. And then you can access <laughs> the rest of the wieners. Or the sausage, I should say. That'll be... <laughs> that's right, though, right? Oh, laws of physics, really. All right. What about yellow crunchets? Oh, yeah. I like yellow crunchets. Is that a Newfoundland thing? It is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yellow crunchets are uh, cheesies or one would call in America cheese doodles. Yep. I don't know what flavor they are. Uh, nacho, I think. Or... Is that what it is? I don't know. They're a different flavor than the orange ones anyway. Uh, everybody's favorite, farmer's meatballs and gravy. Oh, Yes. When I was pregnant, I didn't crave too much food, but I do remember craving those, especially because you couldn't get them. But uh, they're pretty gross. Oh, yeah. It's like dog food in the can. <laughs> Delicious. Any other Newfoundland cuisine? I mean, cuisine is a real loose term yeah, here. Cuisine's not. <laughs> I mean, but like weird shit like that that you're going to get here, like lion crushing that. Um, how about this one? Do you like salt beef? No. I'm not a fan at all. It's very fatty. I love salt beef. It puts good flavors on the vegetables and all that kind of stuff, but just to eat the meat itself, I, I, I'm not a fan. Okay. Anyway, that is part two of Newfoundland and Labrador. So what did we talk about? Let's do a clue up here. We talked about the evil polar bear Nanorluck. We talked about Krampus of uh, Northern Labrador. We talked about Father Duffy's Well and how it's more than just a spring. It was some place that... A priest probably fought a demon, and also maybe somebody got cured in the water. We talked about the Newfoundland Rangers, Mr. Hogan, and his heroic tales. We also talked about the uh, the Trucks and the Pollux disaster and how a community came together to save over 180 people from uh, a naval disaster. Uh, we talked about Vienna sausages, which <laughs> no good Newfoundland conversation is complete without that. Yeah. Um, I must say that of all the episodes we've done this season so far, this was by far the easiest because... Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thank you very much to all the listeners who uh, gave us stories because that made it that much easier because we didn't have to go searching out for stuff. We just basically ran with what you told us to go look up or sometimes read verbatim what you told us. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, we want to definitely thank all the listeners. Uh, I hope you, you all enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. I hope you weren't too crude i think i think our last episode was pretty bad yeah it was great i'm sure people enjoyed it if you have any stories of your own you can always share them with us we love it it's like our favorite thing to do so if you do want to reach out to us we have a website it's uh subweirdpodcast.com we are on the twitter machine at somewhereedpod and you can send us an email at somewhereedpodcast at gmail.com or if you prefer you can send us a letter in the mail at no, we don't have a snail mail address. I was just <laughs> General Delivery, Portugal Cove, Barry. And then it ends up at your house because everyone knows you. If you do enjoy the podcast, feel free to give us a review, give us a like, share, or, you know. Spread the word. Like I said, our advertising budget's pretty low. You, you tell somebody say, to check this podcast out. It certainly helps. If one, any, anyone else that would listen because of your recommendation certainly means a lot to us, and we would certainly appreciate that. All right, more stories about Newfoundland and Labrador. There's some weird by. Some weird.
fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Everyone likes the wrong brand. Bananas proof that God exists. 